Fat Project family, how's it going? Now, we like to look good in the gym and out of the gym. Uh, that's why you always see Mark and I and Andrew is stepping up on the short, short game, mm-hmm. wearing shorts from Viore and clothes from Viore. And honestly, the number one compliment that I've seen, that I've gotten, and even Mark's gotten is, damn, your butt looks good. <laughs> and that's because, well, the clothes we wear make our booties look mm-hmm. delicious. Andrew, how can they get it? <laughs> yeah, you guys both have pretty big wagons. Uh, you guys can head over to viori.com slash power project. That's V-U-O-R-I.com slash power project to receive 20% off the most amazing apparel that looks so good inside and outside of it's the It's going to make your ass look Fat and, and your ass like will that. look fat. Links to them down in the description as well as the podcast show notes. Uh, God damn it. That's a good one. <laughs> that was a good one. Make your ass look fat. <laughs> What's going on, coach? You guys won a national championship? We did. We did somehow, some way. Yeah. Dude, that's wild. Crazy. Crazy. 70, 77,000 people? 72,000 people, I think, were in there. Mm. It was chaos. My mom got to go, though. That was really cool. But my good. two brothers went. And a, a few weeks, like a week prior, two weeks prior, my twin brother was like, oh, I can't go. Uh, he's a firefighter and he had a, he has a daughter. And so he's like, it's just too many days to be without her. Mm-hmm. I said, look, man, I'm not going to peer pressure you. <laughs> but I'm but this telling is you. for the national championship, I mean, bro. And I remember telling him, like, we're going to win, though. And, you know, just talking shit. Like, we're mm-hmm. going to win, though. And then we won. So, yeah, <laughs> it was it was amazing. It was really the, like the coolest sporting event that i've ever i mean i was there with the team so that's one thing but just to be in there it's like yo this is crazy what's it like being in that town when you guys are winning like that that's got to be amazing too yeah for sure uh and the first because the final four is there uh or you mean in lawrence yeah in lawrence Mm -hmm. yeah i mean that that's yeah it's it's just crazy i mean it's such a basketball town obviously and but the whole entire city is you know all the way down to kansas city like the whole thing. So we play our conference tournament in Kansas City. And so that's exciting. And that builds it. And then when we go, obviously, through March, uh, yeah, the whole town is just rallying behind you. And then we did, the, obviously, the uh, the parade. Mm-hmm. And you're talking about, I don't know, like hundreds of thousands of people just line the streets. Just losing their mind. Yeah, like it's just like, yo, this is actually pretty cool. So, Is the Final Four always there? Because I'm, I'm kind of unaware. I'm the guy it's that's in different like. different spots, I think. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, every year it moves to every a different city. Okay. So this year it was in um, New Orleans. Okay. So And that was actually a good kind of town for it to be in because obviously you got Bourbon Street there and all that. So uh, And the Final Four is cool because, yeah, as we get the highlights going, uh, the Final Four is cool because uh, most people will go out there for the weekend. Mm-hmm. And so this is obviously the North Carolina game, the last game. But before that, we beat Villanova. And so if you came even to support Villanova that night when you're on the street, even Villanova fans are like, damn, man, y'all beat us, but go win that shit. Now. You know? So it's like people just start to rally for you a little bit. The tournament is special. You know, you got 64 teams in there. And uh, you don't see the same thing from college football, though college football adopted a playoff system and they mm-hmm. have some teams that go in there. But, you know, it's like the top six or something. I don't even remember how, how many teams are in there. But there's not nearly as many teams as there are in the in the final four yeah and when the final four happens like these teams that you never heard of these areas that you never heard of sometimes get these huge upsets mm-hmm. like yeah. i'm sure while, during your time at kansas you've been there for three years even with as great a run as they've had i'm sure you you guys have been upset here and there by some teams where you're like like other people haven't heard of them but they still might be a good yeah. team like james madison or something yeah like that, for right? sure yeah i mean the upset story is what makes you know they call it march madness for a reason <laughs> right. it, it creates the madness so uh 
Yeah, and big teams. I mean, big teams fall. Like obviously, Kentucky lost this year, and uh, but it's basketball. I think that's why it's fun. It's one or two guys can get hot, and mm. if you have a good kind of scheme, you can figure it out. And you know, one or two big shots, just like that one. So mm-hmm. yeah, it's 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 definitely fun. That's why it's so hard. It's you know, even if you look at us, like Coach Self now is the only active coach with two national championships. Mm. And wow. obviously he's, in my opinion, the best college basketball coach, but it's also just because the tournament is so hard. I mean, it takes relatively some luck, right? Like you've got to have the right matchups and all of that, and the seating is important. So, uh, yeah, that's why there's no other coach with two, right? Mm. Just because how hard it is. So. How, how, do, how does the – how does the rest of the school get good at shit? Because, like, the football team, ain't, they, don't, <laughs> they don't do so well in Kansas, right? Uh, well, they haven't been for the past decade or so, Oof. you know. Uh, Mark's allowed to say that because his wife is an alumni. So. Oh, okay. Yeah, there yeah, 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 yeah. And, and an athlete, swimmer. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. so he gets to say things that other people can't. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's it's obviously hard, but it takes time and they got a new coach now, so mm. I think they're on the right path. But uh, we got our first football game this Friday, so hopefully we kick it off with a good good start. But it's, it just takes time. Yeah, it's tough because you see the football factory teams, like they're good at football, mm-hmm. and then they're not usually as good at basketball. And there's some couple schools that are pretty good at multiple sports, but yeah. it's got to be hard when you're, I guess, you uh, you build a tradition, right, and mm-hmm. you recruit, and you're known for, you know, Kansas is known for basketball. For sure. Yeah, yeah. And I'm sure that factors into if you're – a football player, a different sport, right? You mm-hmm. probably think, well, that's a basketball school. Mm-hmm. Right. So it probably takes time to even it out a little bit. But uh, I don't mind being a basketball school, that's for sure. So, being, oh, go God. I was going to say, being a strength coach, uh, how do you sift through, uh, like, current trends of, like, what people should and shouldn't be doing in the weight room and then also uh, just maybe naturally what some of your guys might gravitate towards? Maybe they see something on Instagram and they're like, I want to try this knees over toes program or I want to yeah. try this – this new thing that they see out there, how do you, do you rein the guys back in? Do you give them freedom? Like, where do you lie on, on that? Yeah, good question. And, and with social media now, they do see all of that stuff. And I like it because what it ultimately does, it just creates buy-in to taking care of your body, right? And there's not too many things that I would say you really shouldn't do. So for the most part, I'll say, hey, if you like that idea, let's find a way to mix it in a little bit, right? Or educate on when to do it, when we shouldn't do it. Um, but I actually really like when they bring me stuff because it just means you're actively engaged with that process. And then I can use that to obviously, hey, you want to do that? Great. We can add that here, but you got to do this too. So it creates ultimately, I think, more buying. But usually mm-hmm. it just starts with the education of when to do something, when not to do it. Hey, that makes a lot of sense, but you happen to be 6'10", 250 pounds, and that might not. But let's regress that and do it this way, right? And so just finding ways to, I think, mix in the things that they – think they might like or sometimes we'll just try and they're like oh damn i don't really like that that's fine too 610 250 yeah it's a lot of mass but actually you know on top of what he just asked what have you been seeing because like obviously we've had ben patrick on the show we've had those guys from gota who work with a lot of field athletes on the show i'm just curious like since you've been working with nba players and college level players too what has what from some of these practices actually been very effective like what have you been able to take and use and see being very effective for some of these players yeah for sure i mean things like knees over toes is um and full credit to the branding that's gone behind that and, and pushed and the content machine to allow that um but at at one level like we've known getting your knees over your toes that's it's good for you for years right we've seen research on that stuff mm-hmm. uh, and more so 
I think a lot of people are afraid to allow the knees to go over the toes. Yeah. And so it's it's like the flip of that. Like, it's okay if that happens. Because ultimately, force has to go somewhere. So if you limit the translation of the knee going forward, then the force is just going to get shot up to the hip mm. or maybe get stuck in the ankle. So you have to disperse force some way. So allowing the joints to move freely is important. Um, so things like that are important, and, you know, you gravitate toward it. But there's so much out there with social media that yeah. for the most part, if if there's an idea that I like, then I'll just go to the research and say, oh, does this make sense, and how can we mix this in? And there's some ideas that are like, hmm, that sounds really cool for social media. You like Seedman? Uh, I don't have a problem with no. him, you know? Uh, okay. But but so much, I, I also like separate, I think, thought processes from clickbait information. It's like you uh-huh. you do that because you want to create. Mm-hmm. You yeah, want to even admit that, yeah. And you want, and, and it's fine because it, cause people will follow you and then you'll sell a book and like, Whatever, you got bills to pay. So I mm-hmm. never hate on anybody mm-hmm. putting money in their pocket. Uh, but I always just stop at, like, as soon as you start claiming injuries will occur, it's like, mm, we, oh. don't, we don't know enough about that stuff. No matter like who Injuries will occur if you do this. If you do this or uh, if you don't do this. If you do full range of motion squats, you're more likely to get injured. Yeah. As opposed to my uh, quarter squat or whatever. Yeah, as opposed to my perfect 90 degrees. And it's like... Right. Okay, that's where I Very like, difficult yeah. to say that for sure. Yeah, like we just don't, it's really hard to study injury mm-hmm. and you can't appreciate that through social media and how much people put out there. But unless you put some fear in somebody, they're not going to follow you or buy your book or whatever. So like I get it and like whatever, I respect the hustle, yeah. but it's so hard to understand injury because um, injury is binary. You either got hurt or you didn't get hurt. Mm-hmm. But the challenge with that is that the odds of injury are not binary. So it's very much possible that somebody almost got hurt but didn't, right? And so because mm-hmm. of that, we don't. it's really hard to understand how training would influence somebody's injury risk because the only thing we know is did you get hurt, did you not get hurt? But it's possible that you were playing through pain and you never missed a game. So you actually were injured but not c- classified as injured because you didn't miss a game. Yeah. Do you think it's fair to maybe make the statement of like um, if you're not well-conditioned, if you're not in good shape, you're mm-hmm. not in top shape, then – your likelihood of getting injured might happen, might increase simply because you can kind of picture the athlete maybe being out of position. Yep. Yeah. You know, 100%. Getting in compromising positions. Yep. Like my effort to go dive for the ball might be different than somebody else who's a little quicker and they're already, you know, a couple steps and they don't have to even dive for the ball. They don't have to go into the stands because yep. they were a little quicker to begin with and just yeah. in better shape, maybe. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, we could talk openly about those ideas because that's, that's not saying you will get hurt. But the odds of you getting increased risk of injury, the odds of you getting hurt are certainly higher if you're a deconditioned athlete, right? If you're not in shape, typically bad things will happen, Mm -hmm. right? And whether that's acute stuff or just fatigue breaks down kind of your movement strategy, right? So we'd call it kinematic. So as you fatigue, your movement quality would break down. Mm. And then over time, that can put you in risky situations and that's where you get an ACL or something That's like gotta that. That's got to happen a lot on right? the court. All the time. Because you're time. up and down the court a lot, right? Which is why you got to be in shape, right? And so uh, if you play, you run, right? And that's that's the ultimate kind of model. You want to be in shape. Because fatigue, they say fatigue makes cowards at everyone. Fatigue makes you worse at everything. So if you're really good at basketball, if you are fatigued, you're going to be not as good. And so uh, no one would argue, no one can argue that being a better shaped athlete or more conditioned athlete would make you better at your sport. Because even if you're Michael Jordan... If you're tired, you're not the best version of Michael Jordan. Yeah. And so that sprinkles so, down across everything. Yeah. So something like being stronger, it could be beneficial, but it also, if you are 
working so much on your strength that it makes you inefficient on the court, you can argue that you would be more fatigued on the court because you're not mo your movement pattern isn't efficient. For so sure. that's where it gets to be really sciencey and really interesting yeah. on your part because you're dealing with these athletes. They already move really well, yep. and you're like, shit, man, I don't know what's optimal for this guy. The guy's 6'10", 250 pounds. He right. came in here. He can jump like crazy. He can already move like crazy. Mm -hmm. What are some of the things that you kind of look at or look for? Like, do you kind of assess a person and say, well, you know, at this uh, stage, it's probably not even a good idea for this for this particular person to even mess with any squats because mm -hmm. their movement pattern uh, seems compromised somewhere. So let's work on something else. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, I think there's always opportunity cost, right? So if somebody is relatively strong and you focus on making them stronger, mm. even if that increases injury risk, we don't know if that's true. But what we do know is by you spending time making them stronger, you don't have time to focus on other things like making them conditioned mm. or making them more mobile or focus on their injury kind of history. Um, so I think you just have to balance all of that. And at some level, once an athlete is strong enough, and that's a whole another debate of what's strong enough, but once we figure out, like, hey, you're strong enough, we have to work on the other qualities because there's so many qualities to sport, especially basketball. Um, as far as squatting goes in general, I mean, we'll start we, – we modify everything, right? So, like, we might go with a hat-filled variation. So we might raise your heels up with a ramp. That's going to allow the knees to get over the toes. It's going to allow you to actually kind of bend and fold a little bit better. We might put your hands up to be supported, keep a more vertical trunk. And now that load is getting dispersed across the joints, predominantly the lower body – and that way, we'll save the low back a little bit. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, that's the goal. I think it's not necessarily just to squat people, but find variations of squatting. Because to me, squatting is just a movement pattern. How do we do this with the least amount of negative cost Exactly. Involved? Exactly. Right? And so, so many times when we say squat, people just think it's barbell back squat. Like, well, no, squatting is just a pattern of, of triple flexion, right? So, as we go into this flex position of the ankles, the knees, and the hips, what's the best version of that for my athletes? And some of them... A back squat works. Some of them a safety bar works. Sometimes it's a hat fill. Sometimes it's a safety bar or excuse me, a front squat. Sometimes it's, hey, we really like this, but we don't like loading anything above the torso. So why don't we just put you in a belt squat? Or, hey, none of this works. Let's just put you in a leg press. So we have so many options that we can use that I think strength coaches or, or coaches in general that think, well, squat means back squat. It's like, no, squat means pattern. And then find the pattern that works for you and your athletes. And if you have anthropometrics that allow you to squat, great. And if you don't, Let's put a variation out here that works. Because ultimately the goal is just to strengthen the lower body for the most part. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts on, um, you know, I mean, there's an idea of like athletes being strong enough, right? But we've had people come onto the podcast that aren't, you know, they don't favor lifting for field and court athletes. Mm -hmm. um, the go guys specifically, they're not a big fans of like putting a barbell on somebody's back or an athlete's back because they feel that it like will cause them to have flat feet on the court, which can potentially, you know, you could injure your knee or something like that, right? What are your thoughts on that idea and that logic? Yeah, good question. Um, I typically don't subscribe to any ideas that are, if you do this, it's going to cause this other thing. Because th the body's just way too complex to, I think, kind of limit it down or narrow it down to this chain reaction that we think will occur. And uh, if you take a still image of something, right, and you say, well, this is, this is what will happen, it's like, well, that was a dynamic task. You just happen mm -hmm. to capture it in that moment. Um, there are but, ideas that like it'll code in bad movement mechanics that will yeah. then show itself up on the court. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I don't think I would agree with that because, you know, we have, to me, it's like this this black swan approach of like, if you could find one anecdote, if anyone has an anecdote of something, they say, well, this is what will happen. 
Well, then you could just find the alternative to that and say, well, no, that can't always be true because we know athletes have squatted and played 20-year careers. Mm -hmm. So, like, logically, that doesn't add up perfectly to me. Um, But I think the bigger discussion is you don't necessarily have to use a barbell. You can find other ways to load people. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, strength, to improve strength, you just need to find ways to load it. And then it opens up the can of worms of what is strength, right? Okay, do we define strength as can you squat two times bodyweight back squat? Well, no. Probably not. That's not how you should define strength for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And unless you're a power lifter, you don't necessarily have to do anything, right? If you're a power lifter, you have to do certain movements, and we're going to do those movements because that's your competition. That is your sport. Yeah. But in basketball or any other sport, your sport is the actual sport. So who cares how you load it? Just find ways to load it mm-hmm. that I think would align with whatever you believe in, right? So um, <clears throat> in general, I don't think you have to do barbell anything. Yeah. But it is a good option for some people, for sure. And then at some level, it's an absolute load conversation. Barbells just allow you to load things at an absolute level, right? The total mass on the body. Barbells are a nice kind of venue for that. Bless you, uh, Andrew, right? But, Man uh, down. But yeah, there's, there's, totally, yeah, there's other nose. options. <laughs> uh, yeah, and I think ultimately, too, you, you got to consider a, when we think about strength training, what we're really thinking about is force expression. Mm-hmm. And so, so many times we think of strength training, we just look at it from kind of an external perspective of how much, how much load is on the bar. Yeah. But really what we care about is force expression, which is really an internal measure of how much is the body producing, how much force is the body producing. And because of physics, we know that if you can move the same weight faster, there's more force being produced, or can you move just more load in general? But we've almost narrowed down strength to this idea of how much load is on a bar. Mm-hmm. And... For your average gym goer, it's probably a fine definition. But for athletes, especially high-level athletes, it's probably not a great definition of strength. Especially because in sports, strength is so much time dependent. It's very mm-hmm. much time dependent. And so it's well, it's one level. Can you produce force at a peak level, max force? But what's probably more important in sport is how fast or how rapid. We would call that, you know, rate of force development. How rapid can you produce force? Because that's probably going to be a little bit more important. And so an analogy, like for my guys, we talk about vertical jump all the time. Yeah. But the rim is only 10 feet. So if an athlete could jump 40 inches versus an athlete who could jump 44 inches, I would argue that the guy who could jump 45 or 40 inches, the, the sport performance wouldn't change. Mm-hmm. The guy who could jump 45 is going to ha- maybe have more highlights, but two points is two points. And so if the rim is 10 feet or the ball is at 11 feet or 9 feet, who can get to the ball faster for a rebound? Who could dunk the ball faster for, to score, right? Mm-hmm. And so sometimes the rate that things occur at is actually much more critical in sport than the absolute number. Mm-hmm. And so like for me, if a guy can jump 40 inches, I don't really care to make them jump higher, right? And I think force and any other quality can kind of be contextualized around that. It's like once you get to a certain point, you don't need to keep improving that thing. Just go improve something else because there's so many things that are important in sport. Have you seen anybody lift more and perform worse? Ooh, uh, there's research that actually supports that. I don't know if I've ever seen that, like with our data. Um, but there is research out there that supports that. And I don't know if it's... I would just say like a time component that comes to, that comes to mind immediately. Like if I spend tons and tons of time squatting, but I don't spend hardly any time jumping, how 100%. good is jumping am I going to be? Yeah, 100%. 100%. Um, and I know there's research on, actually on um, surfers, I think surf sprint times. And they found that, uh, don't quote me on this, it's been a while since I read the research, but they did a bunch of, I think, pull-up variations. And... Uh, they looked at the athletes who were stronger in the pull-up were actually slower in the surf sprint. But it, but the rationale was you spent so much time focused on this movement pattern that you mm-hmm. didn't spend time focused on the other thing. And so it's just a time, a cost of time, essentially. Um, I don't think, I can't think of a reason 
why being stronger would ever hurt you. Mm-hmm. Unless you're producing so much force that you don't have the eccentric qualities, the breaking force to accept or accept that load. That can get you in some... Or if you're working on it to your detriment. Like you love deadlifting and you got a guy who breaks into your weight room and is deadlifting, you know, every day just because he's obsessed with it and it hurts his back. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. If there's there's acute consequences to that over time, then yeah, because ultimately, you know, if if your back is sore, now your practice isn't as good. Mm -hmm. And then now you're not getting good in practice. And now that means you're probably not performing well in the games. So a lot of that comes to mind too. Uh, But independent, just strength... Uh, being stronger in general, I don't think is going to ever hurt you. But if it comes at the cost of anything, then mm. now it's probably like, okay, we either need to spend more time doing other things or in your seeking of improved deadlift or squatting, it comes with some consequences. Well, now you're sore all the time and now you can't practice or you can't focus on other qualities. So, But independent of all those things, being stronger typically is, is a good quality to have. Do you have like a uh, <clears throat> kind of like the same base marker as you did for the vertical for speed? Because I'd imagine like if you're faster on the court, you you'll you'll get some, you'll get a lot of advantage. And then if somebody's a little bit faster than you, then okay, well yeah, they got a little bit more advantage there too. Yeah. So it's a little bit different in my opinion. But do you have anything like that? Yeah, I mean speed in basketball is typically measured by three quarter court sprint. And so if you look at like fast players, they're at like three point one or below on a three-quarter court sprint. So that would be you start at a baseline, you run through the opposite free throw line. Mm-hmm. And if you're a very fast guard, for example, if you can get to 3.1 or below, you're very fast. But then it comes down, okay, if you're at 3.2, are we going to focus on getting you to 3.1 or below three seconds? And if so, at what cost, right? And so uh, I think sometimes it's almost like, is he fast? And what is fast? Well, now it's like always context dependent. What does fast mean? I don't know. Can he blow by his defender, right? Can mm-hmm. he get to the cup, create some pressure on the defense, and then fan it out or – so it's almost like you you got to bring all of that in all the time to say, is he fast? Well, we can measure it. But then also, hey, you're very fast when no one's guarding you. But when someone's in front of you, you're so damn slow. And you're dribbling slow. and everything else. And yeah. you're dribbling and you got to think. And now there's a mental component. So there's so much of that mm-hmm. um, that pretty quick you can tell if a guy's fast or not. And if, and if you're confused on it, he's probably fast enough. Mm-hmm. He just needs to get better at other things, right? He can't dribble. He's thinking too much. He can't read the defense. But if you're slow, if you're a guard and you run at 3-5, okay, you're just slow. And so we just need to improve that quality, <laughs> right? So sometimes it's so obvious that you just need to improve the, the underpinning qualities. But if you have to ask the question, they're probably fast enough. You just need to work on the cogn- kind of conscious or cognitive component or reading the defense or you don't know how to dribble or, or your bag isn't deep enough. Like I tell my guys all the time, like you're fast. You just don't have the skill set to express that. And we, I've seen athletes who can jump 40-plus inches, but they never dunk in a game. Mm. They can jump high enough, but as soon as you give them a ball, they just can't put it all together. It's a lot to go one, two dribbles, read a defense, jump up, and then a defender jumps and be able to dunk it, right? Like that's a, that context is a very challenging thing for some athletes. But if in a layup line, like I've seen athletes, they're, they're the most impressive dunker ever in a layup line. But in the game, you never dunk, right? And so it's putting those pieces together. Yeah, because like, how often are you gonna run three quarters of the court and then just hit the brakes or try not to run into the the back pad, right? Yeah. So you gotta stay in bounds if you have the ball. So for that sure. makes sense. Yeah, the variables. Yeah, for sure. And mm-hmm. you bring up a good point too of like, basketball is an acceleration based sport. It's not a top end speed sport because, mm-hmm. like you just talked about, at some point you need to slow down or you run out of bounds. And when you run out of bounds, you hurt your team because now they're going five on four the other direction, and so now we don't have a defender back. So we focus a lot on acceleration, but top-end speed, for the most part, isn't basketball-specific. Now, you can argue if you increase somebody's top-end speed, you make their accelerations faster. Mm. 
Or you could just make their accelerations faster. And that's kind of what we choose to, or I choose to do. How does one make acceleration faster? Oh, man, that's, a, that's another can of worms. But there's a bunch <laughs> to it. But ultimately, you can look at it from the underpinning qualities of, okay, acceleration is more force dependent. There's more time on the ground. So mm -hmm. if you make them stronger, that would typically transfer. And then there's kind of an orientation of force, a horizontal force component. You also need to get them good at leaning, right? Mm. And so a rule of thumb could be a 45-degree angle, right? Can they get into this lean position and then apply force into the ground backwards to propel themselves forward? So when you think about accelerating faster, it's some of those components, right? Like especially early accelerations, more force-dependent. And then can you get them to obviously transfer their force into this horizontal lean and you could do different movements, right? Like a hip thrust or some of these, or an RDL, more hip dominant exercises might transfer better for that. But ultimately, are they fast? I mean, excuse me, are they strong relative to their body mass? And then can they put that that force production into the floor at the right angles? So an athlete who stands vertically right away mm -hmm. isn't going to be good at acceleration because their force is going straight down. And that's more top end speed mechanic. But you need to be able to lean to push the floor backwards so you can go forward. Versus top end speed, it's okay to basically hit straight below you because you're just trying to maintain speed at that yeah. point. Yeah. Can you still play? Uh, a little bit. <laughs> what are the bit. what are the, what's the team think of that? <laughs> oh man, they, they think you suck. No, they think I'm. They they gotta think I'm somewhere between Michael and LeBron. Yeah, <laughs> they gotta think <laughs> at that. This point. They gotta think that it's a lateral movement from <laughs> yeah. those two. Yeah, yeah exactly. It, anything below that is just disrespect. <laughs> I was gonna ask. Uh, are you involved at all with like any of the recruiting process? Like, I know that's a whole it's its own thing, but. I can just imagine that like they would want some input in regards to like some of the mechanics that the players that they're looking at might have. You can be like, okay, yes, this guy does start at that 45 degree. He's going to be easy to work with, et cetera, et cetera. So do you have any involvement with that? Yeah, yeah, certainly involvement in recruiting. Mm -hmm. uh, at the NBA level is more of, of what you were talking about. Hey, what do you think of his body? What can you do for you know with that frame? Over the course of a year, how much weight can you put on him? Mm -hmm. We would screen his movement quality. What do you guys think from an injury risk perspective? Because at that level, there's a lot of money involved, obviously. And so you're going to make some decisions based on current kind of uh, player, but also future player. In college, it's a little bit different. Like, we don't do any testing in recruiting. That's going to be more based on if, if the recruiting coach thinks he can play here and wants to offer him a scholarship, then it's more of a pitch. We just want them. We want them to come here. We're already sold. We want that player. And now we're pitching to them, right? It's kind of a sales process mm -hmm. of, hey, can we get this player here? And what are they going to get when they get here, right? Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm involved in every recruiting pitch now, but it's not any testing or it's not the question of do we want them or not want mm -hmm. them. It's we know we want this player. They're here. Let's convince them that this is the right spot for them. And, you know, my quick sales pitch is you want to go to the NBA or not, man. What are we doing, mm -hmm. right? And so um, – and then we give them the track record of that. Obviously, with, with the Kings, I was able to work with a lot of players. Mm -hmm. Some of those players they've heard of, right, whether it's an OG like Vince Carter or some of the younger guys that the players can relate to. Um, so, yeah, it's a little it, always involved in that recruiting process. But the NBA, it's more of an evaluation, whereas in college, it's more of a, hey, let's convince him and, and his parents that this is the right spot for him. When it comes to something like weight gain, you know, sometimes – even that gets to be complicated because, like, does the player really need to gain weight or does he need to just be stronger? Like, is that the reason why you want someone to gain weight or do you want them to gain weight because a center typically weighs this much or a forward, you know, typically weighs this much? But, again, what's the reason why, you know, you want someone to be that heavy? Maybe for a particular athlete it might slow them down too much. Mm -hmm. How do you go about getting some of the guys bigger? That's got to be challenging because you're trying to keep them athletic at the same time. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And 
for our guys now, I just use NBA data. So there's a really cool analysis from 2020-18. They just averaged every draft pick and by position, by body weight, and some strength numbers because mm-hmm. we have the combine data. So I use that as a rough rule. Now rough you're estimate. lined up to get drafted. Yeah, hey, man, you're 6'4", or you're 6'3", and an average, okay, even though the NBA has changed so much over time, like it's kind of positionless now. But for the most part, okay, anyone who's 6'4", weighs 220. Okay, so you weigh 180. We got a mm-hmm. long way to go. Mm-hmm. Now, it doesn't mean you have to be at 220 to get drafted. But if we know that that's an average, that's low-hanging fruit. Let's try to get you there. Now, that's a big gap, so we won't get you there. But to me, it's more of can we create buy-in? Now you know you should gain weight. So one level is just that. Let's compare you to other people in the NBA because you're going to be going up against them. That's your dreams. So let's help you get there. Mass also to me, so that's like one level. The second layer is it becomes kind of at some level body armor, right? If you have really thin legs, for example, and you get ran around screens all of the time, and then you get need, well, if you have very thin legs and you just don't have the mass on top of that, now you'll get a bone bruise, and now you can't play for a week or two. And we've actually dealt with that. So when I had De'Aaron Fox, you know, he was light as a feather, and that helps him. That's why he's so fast, and that's why he can jump so high. But those qualities only help if you can play. But if you're also so thin that every time you get need, you have to miss a game because literally it creates a bone bruise because you don't have the padding above it. But now the conversation is, hey, you don't need to gain mass necessarily because you're not strong enough. You just need the body armor. And then the last part is obviously that strength, right? We do know that cross-sectional area and strength are going to have relationships. So sometimes it's just you're not strong enough, and our goal is actually strength. But what comes along with that is eating and sleeping and recovering, and that adds mass as well. So whenever I think of size, I kind of look at it like, okay, let's comp to NBA players. And then if we can't get there, is there a rationale for body armor because they're going to run you around screens and you're going to have to hit and bump? Play type comes to mind. Like, are you a physical guy? Do you create contact? And if so, you probably want to have maybe a – a stronger upper body or bigger upper body to create some contact. And then lastly is obviously that force component. You can build, like the idea of building force independent of mass is to me an argument not worth having. Just get people stronger, and if weight comes along with that, mm-hmm. great. I'd agree, yeah. And Sounds- then if they need to gain weight, then get them to gain weight. And if strength doesn't come along with it, sometimes that's okay as well, right? Because sometimes it's just a mass conversation, right? Two bigs, two centers, all things being equal, the one who weighs more is probably going to be a little bit more effective, right? Because if your defender's pushing on you and you weigh 220 mm-hmm. versus you weigh 250, well, that's just a heavier mass for them to push against. Even if you produce the same force as somebody who's 220, because that you producing force is either holding your own ground or creating some space. But if a defender has to push on you, having more weight is just more weight for them to push on. Mm-hmm. And over 40 minutes, do you want to push? If I'm a defender, I would rather push on a lighter person who's 220 than 250. And over 40 minutes, you'll break them down if you weigh a little bit more. Some of these athletes are insanely strong on the court, mm-hmm. right? Like there's some people you can't figure out how to, like they can box you out and they can do all kinds of crazy stuff. And if you were to see them in the weight room, mm-hmm. you know, they put 185 pounds on their back and they just look like they don't even want to try to squat it, much yeah. less actually squat it, right? Yeah, absolutely. And that brings in, obviously, like to me, strength is a skill. And so there's so many athletes that are very strong in their sport, but they're not quote unquote strong in the weight room. And to me, that's just that doesn't mean they can't produce force. It just means that they're not good at your movements. And that's okay because squatting is a skill. Right. All right. And so if you were to squat for years, you would get very good at the skill. But they don't need that skill to be good at their sport. They need force to be good at their sport. And a lot of them have that, right? And like there's been times where I'll jump in and I'll try to guard somebody in the pro level or college level, and they're way stronger than me on the court. Like there's nothing I can do. But I bench, squat, and deadlift <laughs> way more than them. And it just means that that's just a skill that they haven't cared 
to take on. And a lot of times it's justified because they've spent so much time developing their sports skill mm -hmm. that they didn't need their strength in the weight room, right? And unless it's football, for the most part, that's probably going to go across almost every athlete. Football players are used to the weight room. Through high school, they'll use especially if you're at the D1 level, right? It's rare that you get to the D1 level in football and you haven't touched a weight. It's very common in other sports that the first time you've actually had consistent training was once you got to college. But they were just better than their peers, and that's how you get a D1 scholarship. As far as recovery is concerned, because like we know that obviously sleep plays the biggest part in terms of some of these athletes being able to recover from session to session, gain size, et cetera. Did you notice a difference between dealing with NBA athletes as far as recovery and then dealing with college athletes? I know that you're the number one school, so maybe they're more committed to that. But you know, when I think of college athletes and college students, sometimes it may seem hard to get those kind of individuals in line. What do you find? Yeah, yeah. I think no, I think you hit it on the head. Like in in the NBA, it's your your rookies are basically your college guys, right? So some of them need the education around why to do stuff and hey, you're going to hit a rookie raw 50 game a rookie wall 50 games into the season. And so mm -hmm. we have to focus on recovery early so that doesn't happen. So you educate there. But for the most part in the NBA, like guys understand recovery because 82 games, <laughs> if you don't understand recovery, you'll find out soon enough why you need it. Mm -hmm. There's yeah. 82 games that are going to dr drive your body into the ground and if you're not actively recovering, then you're just going to feel terrible towards the end. And I always say the teams Talent aside, the teams that end up winning the most in the playoffs are the teams that just don't fall off. A lot of times people think it's like this this kind of increase in performance over time, but really it's just who doesn't fall off. And if you look at the past few years with the injuries in the NBA, that's for the most part has held true. College is a little bit different, actually. It's almost like the the increase in performance through March. Like the teams that can peak at the right time. Like in, There's no college basketball team in the world right now that's good at basketball, right? It's just too early. But obviously, once we get through our non-conference schedule, you get a little bit better. And then conference schedule comes, and hopefully you're competing at a high level. And then you hope to peak in March toward the end of season. Yeah. Whereas the NBA, once you're about 20 games in, you just want to be in shape, and they just don't fall off. Um, and then the really good teams, like the Warriors, they won't care about you know some losses during season because they know their bigger goal is the end of season. Mm -hmm. uh, but for the most part, to answer the question, most NBA players know the importance of recovery and the value of it. College is a little bit different because they're just used to getting by with whatever, right? They won't sleep. They won't eat. They'll show up to lift, and then they'll feel terrible. And you're like, what, did you eat today? Nah, coach, I didn't have time. I'm saying, don't give me that. You had time. You just didn't figure out a way to eat and find find a place to do it. So there's much more education that needs to occur at the college level. Yeah, Some of it's just money. In the NBA, a player can go out and buy his own recovery boots and spend $500 on it or $200 on a mm -hmm. massage gun. And college players, for at least historically, haven't had the, the funds to do that. With NIL, that's changing now, and, and mm -hmm. players can go and buy some things. What's NIL? Uh, name, image, and likeness. So it's how college players are getting paid now. Okay. They can use their social media and stuff like that, right? Yeah, yeah, social media. I mean, there's agencies now that get them deals. but uh, So now that, that will actually help. You know, there's been a lot of negative spin on that, but I think it's actually positive. I mean, it's definitely positive. Um, but it helps from even a recovery perspective. Because now I can say, yo, yo, fan, go buy a damn massage gun. And historically, they would say, how am I going to get that? Mm -hmm. And now I say, you can definitely get that because I know the deals you're getting. DM I mean, that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Or get DM them, right? I mean, some you just got $10,000 for passing out, you know, sandwiches at the drive-thru. Like, you can buy mm -hmm. that now. Um, so I think that'll actually improve over time with some of the stuff because as soon as you attach a number to somebody, they, they begin to think of their body as their business. Mm. Right? And in the NBA, that's always been the case because you were getting paid to play basketball. And in college now, there's part of that. Like, yo, if you get hurt and you don't play, your name, image, and likeness will decrease. Mm -hmm. So you are a business now. And now let's start to treat our body as a business. Let's recover appropriately. So I think that'll actually start to improve a little bit. 
Are these guys seeing you train the way that uh, the Kings used to see you train? Because I remember you and your buddies over at the Kings get all hyped up and you guys would train hard. Do you still have time for that? And do have you created a culture like that at Kansas? Yeah, not not as much because we used to train every day in there. And that was that was great. Um, not as much now, uh, just the way that kind of, you know, in the NBA, you you essentially, a guy can train before practice, after practice, any time of the day, essentially. You're essentially a personal trainer, right? Um, to 15 guys. That's your mm-hmm. job as the head strength coach. College, we train as a team, and they have classes. Um, so there's less visual of that. Uh, but occasionally I'll jump in and, you know, oh, yeah, you know, they're hyped to press 80-pound <laughs> dumbbells or whatever. And like, oh, that's cute. And you jump in just, just to show them you can still do it. Right, um, right, right. Uh, And they know that. And then it's still through social media. I'll post stuff They know you're practicing it, you know. Yeah, and yeah. I think that ultimately that's all I want. I want them to know that I practice what I preach because that creates buy-in, right? So, uh yeah, not as much, though. We used to get after it, and, and then you guys came over a few times with mm-hmm. the Kings. Yeah, so. that was great. Yeah, that was incredible. Um, but, you know, getting the guys to buy in, you mentioned that many times. I would imagine that you'll have to also kind of make some compromises in there with maybe your own belief system and some of the things. Maybe you don't think it's the best idea in the world for uh, a couple of players to pass a barbell back and forth and do curls until they can't move their arms anymore. Uh, but there must be some room for some of that because you you probably need to allow the guys to do what they want to do and to do things that they consider to be fun, right? Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. And we and we do things like that, right? We let them do twenty ones today. Yeah, <laughs> we let them do some of like dogmatic things or things that are just for fun, and that creates buying. But I look at buying like every relationship, which means compromise has to occur, right? Whether it's a friendship, whether it's a, a relationship with your wife or your kids or anyone like in general there's compromise that occurs to maintain solid relationships because mm-hmm. if it was your way or the highway then you wouldn't have that many friends or people around <laughs> you so we all compromise and i look at strength and condition very much the exact same way and typically we build so much trust early that guys they're not seeking for ways out of things so if they come to me and they need a compromise hey coach that doesn't feel that good on this or hey coach you mind if we do this it's typically like yeah like I if if a player tells me something hurts i believe him so let's change that if a player tells me hey Ryan, i need some gun show today Great, right? Basketball's tank top season anyway, so you might as well get some guns on you. Uh, but yeah, there's a ton of compromise that goes on. And uh, I think over time, we build so much trust that guys don't take advantage of that at all. Like, for the most part, they do what I want them to do. And then because of that, mm-hmm. I let them do some things that they want to do, as long as it's not going to hurt them, right? right? And for the most part, it won't. Like, a bicep curl is not going to hurt anyone, or anything in the weight room, for the most part, is not going to hurt anybody. So if there's things you see on social media you want to try, different core drills, Great, let's try it. Let's let's give it a go. And if you start time, having a deadlift competition, then you might step in yeah, and be like, yeah. "Hey, like I don't think this is a great idea." Yeah. And those are my favorite moments because there's times where that happens. Like, we'll use social media, so I'll I'll tell our social team to come in and record on days, just because I know that the output that they give those yeah, days hype. is much better. Mm. And so we'll do that. But then because of that, they go so much harder. And it's like, I got to pull them back now. Like, <laughs> I appreciate you trying to do that, but we're not there in the program yet, and yeah. I'm not going to risk your back being sore because you want to look cool on Instagram. So we call it like cap energy. I tell them like fake the energy, right? Like, yo, do another set, but you know, we just going to get two reps, but let's time it up. Yeah. So I play into kind of that content with them because ultimately I want them to be bought in and I want them to get content because I want them to share that stuff because mm-hmm. I want them to feel like that's part of their identity, right? Like I'm a guy who works hard. I'm a guy who shares that. and mm. Nobody wants to be phony. So if you're sharing that you're working hard, you better actually work hard, right? So yeah, uh, yeah sometimes I pull them back, but... Um, I, don't, I would rather do that than having the athlete that you got to always push, push, mm. push. Like, I want the guy that I could pull back. And then over time, we kind of build that. And eventually, he's a freak, right? And that's what you want, freak athletes who can compete at a high level. 
I was actually about to ask you that because like, you know, there are some athletes who go like they go so hard in the weight room because they're trying to develop so quickly, but they don't know when they're doing too much. So I'm assuming like on your part, it's smart programming to make sure that even if they go so hard, they're not going to fuck themselves up and you'll notice those guys anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and earlier you touched on it too, about this idea of strengths. So like one thing we, we jump our players on the force plates weekly. Mm. And so we have objective measures to say what's going on internally with this athlete, right? And if we start to see some decrement or some breakdown at an objective level, then we had to take a step back and evaluate the program. Yeah. And then obviously at the subjective level, right? They just tell you, coach, I feel like, you know, I don't feel good today. Uh, and sometimes that's take a step back, look at the program. Why is that? Or sometimes it's, hey, practice was just three hours yesterday and it was just hard. Mm-hmm. So that's expected. Other times, like in our off season, some of our accumulation like phases, I tell my guys, you're not going to feel good. And we might know that some of these metrics are going to come down, but we also know that they're going to come out of those feeling recovered and refreshed. So there's, yeah. I think it's always kind of where are we at in the program, how are they feeling, and then take a step back and try to contextualize that. Like, why do you feel that way? Is it the program? Is it other things? How's your sleep? How's your recovery? And if all of those things are aligned and you still feel terrible, then it's probably the program, and let's back off or make some changes. Uh, but, yeah, you got to constantly evaluate that because there's just so much going on. And as much as we know about strength and conditioning and performance, there's actually a lot we don't know. And so I always say every athlete is an experiment of one, right? It's an N equals one experiment. And for some athletes, your program is going to work great and they're going to get bigger, faster, stronger. And other athletes, it's not going to work or they're going to break down or whatever. And so you just have to figure out why that is. And there's so much that goes into that. Outside of basketball, do the guys work on jumping much? Uh, I don't know if outside of basketball, I mean, you mean specific playing? So we'll, we'll do some mechanic stuff for mm-hmm. sure. Like, do you do a lot of, a lot of jumping, like in the gym? Yeah. Like yeah box yeah. jumps and things like that. Yeah. We will do not a lot. Um, I'm a big believer that if your exposure is just high quality, you don't need a ton of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, a lot in one session, we might get 20, 20 jump efforts mm-hmm. and that would be top end for me, like 20 mm-hmm. good efforts. Now, if it's lower level, like extensive stuff, like hurdle hops, even jump rope, right? At some level, jump rope is a plyometric. Mm. And so you can do 100 to 200 contacts in jump rope, and that's pretty easy for good athletes. But that's a lot of contact. So there's always that relationship. But if, if it's a high effort exposure, then we're going to bring it down. It's going to be quality over quantity. And if it's a low effort or low amplitude effort, then we could do a bunch of that stuff. And sometimes the goals there are different, right? If we're going to jump as high as we can, maybe we'll use boxes to decrease some of the landing impact. But the goal of that is to get them to jump higher. A lower amplitude, high extensive, so like a jump rope, that just might be, can we prepare the ankle and the tendons and the Achilles for the stiffness and, and, and the loading that occurs in three hours of practice, right? So we kind of approach it from two different angles. But if it's, if the goal is to jump higher, it's not going to be that many efforts because you're getting a ton of time on your legs in practice. You're going to get a ton of jumps in practice. But we still do want to expose to max effort jumps because if a guy could jump 40 inches, you're not going to jump 40 inches every practice. Mm. It might be rare. Even if you go to catch an alley-oop, right, because you're, you're only going to jump as high as you need to to dunk the ball, and the rim's only 10 feet. And so occasionally, if a guy can jump 40 inches, we want to expose him to those 38-plus-inch efforts just so that he can get exposed to high efforts. Uh, but when we do that, quality is high and quantity is low. Since it's college, um, I'm curious about this. We've been talking about, like, alcohol quite a bit on the show because, um, you know, some people, when it comes to their dieting or when it comes to life, they want to be able to fit alcohol in while still being able to perform. But you know that it doesn't help anything as far as performance. It doesn't help anything as far as sleep. It can really mess a specific athlete up. Mm-hmm. Now, these guys being in college and having fun, I know that there's an education piece, but do you 
find that there is any type of issues with having to have like deal with alcohol in these athletes at all? Or is it something that's not really do? Are they on point when it comes to dealing with that and performing? Yeah, I mean, we've never seen issues. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, college kids are going to have fun and, yeah. and you want them to have fun. And because a big part of of being a holistic athlete and actually recovering is do you have a social life, right? Mm-hmm. And so if you isolate yourself, that's not good for anything. So you do want to have a social life. Um, it's never been a problem. My education is simply know who you are. If you're a guy that goes out and you practice, you know, terrible the next day, then you need to know who you are, right? And if you're a vice versa guy who can go out and have a good time and come to practice and play well and play to go in the games and play well, then you found your balance. But I think it's okay. important to know who you are, find your balance. And the examples I always give are in the NBA, guys will go out, obviously, they have money and you're in good cities. Mm-hmm. And I've seen players who can go out till 4, 5, 6 a.m. and go for 30, 40 points the next <laughs> night. And then I've seen guys who can do that and they are terrible. Yeah. And I think it's just important to know who you are, right? Like, I don't, mm-hmm. I'm not going to tell you who you are, but you need to know who you are and just have that self-awareness and be real with yourself. Okay, when I go out, I'm terrible. So I probably should limit the amount of times I'm going out in season, right? And vice versa, if you're a guy who can do it, well, there's a bigger conversation of you don't want to do it all the time and all those things and know your influence and all of that. But I think it's just important that we want our guys to be social in general. Yeah. I want people to be social, right? We know that's good to be a good mm-hmm. human. You should have a social life. But at what cost? And I think you just need to know what that cost is. You mentioned uh, the force plates. What other things do you guys look at? I know like sometimes in the NBA, they might look at how many times an athlete jumped per game and how far they ran and they track, I think, the – uh, maybe San Antonio Spurs are like one of the first teams to do it. They really tracked everything. Do you guys uh, get that intense with trying to track what each player does on the court? Yeah, not not as intense in the NBA, or excuse me, in college, um, mainly because of the infrastructure of technology. So like in the NBA, there's a, there's a technology called Second Spectrum that there's a camera system in every NBA arena, and you don't have to do anything. You're going to get that data regardless. Oh. So after every yeah. NBA game, you can download – basically a massive Excel spreadsheet that's going to tell you every player that played, the distance they ran, the average velocities they ran, the jump counts. You can get all that information without putting anything on the athlete without, I mean, you pay for it, but the teams all pay for them anyways. Mm-hmm. So some of the amount of, the amount of data NBA teams get, some of it's just non-invasive. And then it, some of it is invasive, right? You're going to do different tests. You're going to jump them on the force plates. Your trainers or your sports med staff might do something. You might literally take blood draws. I mean, you could do everything because you just have a massive budget and you could justify everything because you're paying $120 million out on contracts. Mm. College is a little bit less invasive. We still have force plates. We'll look at the velocities they move at. We do have uh, two different wearable technologies that we wear on the practice court and you could wear them in the games. Um, So you still get a a fair amount of information, but certainly not to the extent of the NBA, mainly just because there's an expectation now in the NBA that we're going to look at our athletes from a million different angles to keep them healthy. And then there's just a budget conversation of NBA teams that are worth billions of dollars that are paying hundreds of millions of dollars can justify mm-hmm. $50,000 50, in technology mm-hmm. and, and data collection. So, uh, But we still look at a, a fair amount of things, and um, but certainly not to the same extent. Any idea like how much somebody would jump in like a season? Like have you ever looked mm-hmm. at like a number like that? You ever <laughs> oh. see like, oh, this guy jumped 40,000 times last year. Yeah, that's a good question. I, I don't know. Uh, I'd imagine it'd be pretty high, obviously, <laughs> because – it's not just jump frequencies you would want. You would also want to understand like the height of those because a two to three inch jump, right? If you think of spot shots or good three point shooters, they actually don't jump very high at all, right? And so that's still a jump though, right? Yeah. You can you can quantify a jump as anytime your toe leaves the ground, that would be a jump. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
versus high efforts. Like I ran through an NBA game once. It was like one time per minute you would get a quote-unquote high effort jump. And that would be for a rebound or, or maybe a pull-up jump shot. Now I'm just watching the film, so I, I can't quantify that. Mm-hmm. What is that, over 10 inches? I don't know. Uh, but it's not as frequent if you start to actually put a number to like the intensity of mm-hmm. it. How high is this jump? Mm-hmm. And it, I don't know. If you were to put like 8 to 10 inches, that's not that frequent. The low-level jumps are super frequent because technically at some level, even running is a plow metric, so you're right. leaving the ground. So is that a jump? Is a spot, ch- is a spot shot a jump? Uh, I just know what's a lot. It's for sure a yeah. lot. But then, you know, lower-level stuff might be more tenderness, and so you can take on some more of that versus if you get into knee, uh, deep knee bends or deep angles in general, that's going to be more musculature. So now you're, you know, if you go to jump 10, 15, 20 inches, that's just more damaging to muscle tissue. And that's the stuff that we probably really care about. You want to understand the low-level stuff from a tendon perspective just to track and understand load over time. Mm. But that's not going to damage the tissues as much as deeper knee bends or higher jump efforts or even accelerations and decelerations. Those high-intensity things are what will make you sore the next day. Mm. And then that, over time, creates the need for recovery. And if you don't attack that, then that's how you break down and you know bad things could happen, whether it's a decrement in performance or an injury. Do you do anything for landings? Like uh, you have people jump down from boxes or, I mean, that's a lot of times where guys get hurt, but they unfortunately, they usually land on somebody else's foot. So I don't yeah. know if there's any training that you can do for that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, in basketball, certainly because it's a vertical sport with people underneath you, the ankle roll is a big problem. We don't do too much around that because there's not much you can do to control that. Um, but landing mechanics in general, we do coach, and so we'll have them drop off boxes. Mm. We'll have them land in positions that we think are important. We'll do that with single leg variations as well. Um, and so we do attack it, but we understand, or I understand, that there's a limitation to how that's going to transfer because sport is just chaotic. You're going to go up and jump to, you know, for what might be a casual dunk, and then you're going to land for the most part, you know, one leg in front of the other, and you're going to be able to absorb that force, and there's plenty of time, and you'll run out of bounds. And then you'll stop and you'll turn and go the other way. Like that's mm. a typical play that you would want to see. But then what might also happen is you go up to jump and then you get fouled. And now your body, there's torsion, right? So now your arm is coming across your body. Your trunk is swinging around the hip. The back leg is going to swing behind you. Now you're landing on one leg, but you got torque coming around with momentum and you're 6'10 and 250. <laughs> and now that knee is trying to figure out what is going on. And those are positions that you can't predict or control. So I always think, can we get our athletes to do all the right things from the wrong positions? And that's ultimately the goal is like, can we give them the capacity to handle all of that, right? Like, I don't know what's going to happen in the sport, but I want to be confident that you can handle whatever is going to happen. Um, and that just is, you know, you, I call it chaos. You just want to start to introduce chaos into your training at some level and get your athletes comfortable managing that chaos because sport is chaos. You know, earlier you were mentioning that um – I don't know if it, you do it also in college, but you're mentioning how you guys have like a screening process and you can kind of tell, oh, this athlete's going to be injury prone this way and that way. And, you know, Mark mentioned landing, right? What ways, when you visually look at an athlete, what ways do you tell if like, oh, they're injury prone with this or that? You know, like some people um, like go to, they have this assessment that they take people through and they watch how people walk and all that stuff. What do you look at? Yeah, good question. And that's the million dollar question, I think. There's a a bunch of screening processes out there, um, whether it's different people, like you mentioned, different companies. Mm-hmm. Uh, the challenge still is, to my knowledge, at a high level, high level research, none of those have actually been shown to prospectively predict injury. Okay. So what I'll do is I'll look at a guy, just how he moves, right? We're going to squat, we're going to hinge, and we're going to put you in a lunge position, and we're just going to move you through range of motion there and look at how that looks and how that feels, right? And so there's some some... Glaring red flags, for example, if every time you squat or get into a position where you need single leg stability and flexion, your knee caves in, 
right? And so you might call that knee valgus. And so early on, you know, call it 10 years ago, we would think that that was a predictor of ACL injury. Mm. A lot of the new research that's come out, especially the bigger cohort studies, have shown that that alone doesn't actually predict ACL tear. And that's why this stuff is so complicated because it's just so hard to study. Um, but I have some rules of thumb. Like, I don't want to see you cave into your knee every time you land or every time you squat or every time you get in a single leg position, right? Yeah. If we put you in a lunge pattern or a split squat position and we see some asymmetries at the knee level, just that perturbation. So if I see, you know, on your right side, if your front knee, if your front leg is in front of you, you go down, even isometric, so you go down to hold a position and that looks very stable, you look comfortable. And then we switch sides and on your left knee, it's shaking all over the place, you can't find stability. Is that gonna lead to injury? I don't know, but are we gonna work on that? Yes, right? And so that's kind of how I look at it. And then we'll look at our force plates. Um, you can look at force ratios. Uh, and then you could also look at asymmetry. So we have dual plate system where we can look at your left leg versus your right leg. Asymmetries comes to mind, obviously. Uh, and my general rule is anything less than 10% is not a big deal. So it's more yeah. like a green flag. If you're 10 to 15% asymmetry, you might yellow flag you. And then anything above 15%, you might say, well, that's a red flag. Now, does a red flag mean you're going to get hurt? No, I'm not saying that. But a red flag means we're going to address it. We're going to do something to try to decrease that asymmetry. Anything less than 10%, you would just call that human variability, right? Your right leg is 8% stronger than your left leg. And sometimes we think that's a bad thing, but it might be positive. It might be because you jump off your right foot all the time. Mm. And that's why you can jump 40 inches, because you jump off your right foot. And that we've created more stiffness and strength at that leg, and now you can jump higher. So sometimes we pursue the correction of things, whether it's a movement or whether it's a force metric. And that might not be good. You might be taking away something that makes them good at, at what they you do. Also, uh you know, if you're jumping off, say, your left foot, your right hip flexor, like if you're jumping off one foot, right. your right hip flexor is uh, flexing powerfully. So you could say, oh, the left side is stronger, but mm. you don't really know because are we measuring the hip flexor on the other side? Like right. maybe that whole side is stronger because maybe your abdomen and maybe everything contracts even harder on the other side. Yep. We're just not looking at it. Yeah, for sure. For <laughs> sure. And, that, and, and the body is going to compensate and find a way, right? Mm -hmm. So Usually if there's something going on, on one side, there might be something on the other side that's counterbalancing that yeah. and creating some some form of symmetry. But the way that you've measured symmetry is not being shown, right? So, um, yeah, we just try to, again, contextualize everything. And ultimately, I never I never jump to the conclusion that this will lead to an injury. Mm -hmm. Because I've seen, I've seen some athletes who literally when you put them on a slide board and tell them to do a reverse lunge, they fall over. They have no balance. <laughs> and you might say, well, this player is going to get hurt. And it's like, well, actually, no, because every time they fall, they like they fall gracefully. They fall all the time, mm -hmm. but they but because they fall all the time, because they lack balance, they've actually found a way to fall gracefully. They're not rooted into the ground so hard mm -hmm. that they might sprain their ankles. Exactly. Versus yeah. your athlete who has great stability who never falls, but every time he falls, he hits the ground. <laughs> yeah, we've seen the athlete who like, yo, you don't really fall that often, but every time you fall, you break the damn earth. It's like <laughs> that's probably not good, mm -hmm. right? So I think that even athletes, even subconsciously, find ways to work around the way that they move, the way that they express force uh, or absorb force or fall or whatever it is. Prop Project Fam, this episode is brought to you by Vivo Barefoot Shoes. We've been wearing these shoes for almost a year now. They're flexible. They have a wide toe box. They allow your feet to get connected to the ground and they will make your feet stronger and they don't look like shit like a lot of these other barefoot <laughs> shoes. Andrew, how can they get them? For the best barefoot shoes on the planet and they also look really, really good, <laughs> head over to vivobarefoot.com slash powerproject at checkout. Enter promo code powerproject20 to save 20% off. Again, Vivo barefoot.com slash power project promo code power project 20 to save 20% off links to them down in the description as well as the podcast show notes. Let's go ahead and get back to this podcast.
I'm actually kind of curious about that. Um, you know, sometimes people look at the way like LeBron walks, right? With his super duck feet. <laughs> pull it like, up, pull it up. I'm going to look for it. <laughs> right? I hope and, I can find it. And some people are like, oh, this is this is so bad. This is injury. But LeBron, it's like he's he's known as one of the guys in the NBA that has longevity, right? Yeah. And then people look at the way like Jordan walks and they're like, oh, that's perfect, right? Now, we, we've seen so many athletes and, and pulled up, like you pulled up the sprinter that had the oh yeah yeah, yeah like the the knees were moving in a weird mm-hmm. way but he's one of the fastest people yeah, on the Justin earth right Gatlin I think yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah and I'm wondering have you ever like looked at the way somebody moves and it was super odd but they ended up it ended up just working really really well for them because yeah. people want to like have one way that people and athletes should move yeah but it doesn't seem to be that way in practice yep yeah 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 great great point and. Uh, see it a lot in jumping, right? You'll see that knee collapse a lot in jumpers, even high jumpers, like guys who can jump really high, not high jumpers in track and field, but just high jumping basketball players. Mm-hmm. And again, 10 years ago, you look at that and say, well, that's that's not good. That that can lead to an ACL tear or something worse. Or, And now it's like, well, hold on. Everybody who can jump high has that. Why is there a performance benefit to that, right? Is there a performance benefit to allowing the knee to get into this <laughs> valgus position? <laughs> There's that footage you have him walking, and then there's another guy like <laughs> making fun of it, impersonating it. That's hilarious. Um, and some of that too is just like learned behavior, right? You you have stiff ankles, so the knees don't want to go over the toe all the time. So yeah. so in your casual day of life, you found ways around that, right? And some of it is some of it is movement specific, right? Mm-hmm. Like if I can get kind of to the my big toe, for example, I might be able to push off of that big toe for longer and create more force. But because of that, that whips kind of the hip around. And now you got this movement of like Justin Gallant that you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there's something to that, right? There's something to perhaps like allowing joints to move in and out of range of motion, especially rotational ranges. It allows them to spring load different joints that would give you a force expression out of that. Then the conversation becomes, well, is that's that's clearly a benefit or potentially a benefit, but it's also potentially a risk. Mm. And if it's a potential risk, do we need to fix that? But in the process of fixing that, do we take away the benefit? And that's where it just gets super complicated and, and yeah. super hard. And uh, and then you add in the fact that we don't know a lot about injury. And and I've studied this stuff. Like I'm not the guy who just says that. Like you mentioned the NBA earlier. So my dissertation, we looked at four years of injury data and every single minute that a player played in the game, we had the camera system data. I mean, you're talking about millions of data points. And we go and we predict, we create a injury prediction model. And my injury prediction model, my area under the curve was like 55%. So it's basically a coin flip, which isn't a good, strong predictor of injury. <laughs> mm. But it wasn't a lack of data. It wasn't a lack of effort to understand it. It was just that this stuff is very complex. Because anytime you think you have something that might lead to injury, there's something that might counterbalance that, right? We talked about fitness, for example. So someone can move perfect, whatever perfect is, but if they're out of shape, it doesn't matter because their movement breaks down. And vice versa, somebody can have quote-unquote bad movement mechanics, but if they're very strong, they may have force capacity to allow for that to be okay over time. So because there's so many things that are going on, it's like we just need to understand this athlete at every level we can Mm -hmm. and then create a plan that we're confident in and execute that plan over time and, you know, knock on wood, hopefully injuries don't occur. But then when they do occur, the benefit of having data is that when we return you to play, we understand who you were before you got hurt. And now we can return you to at least that status, if not better. So, uh, yeah, it, it gets complicated for sure. But it's not – I think it's easy to go out and say, well, this is why people get hurt. And then you sell DVDs and books and get Instagram <laughs> followers. And maybe I should do that so my, my follow gets up. But <laughs> the the I think the honest approach is that there's a lot that we don't know about this yeah. stuff. Whatever perfect is, I think that was perfectly said. You know, that's what you just said. And I think that that's – 
how do we know how someone's supposed to move? You know, it, I guess we can we can have a, a history of the way that we've seen certain people move and say, this seems to serve a lot of people really well. Uh, but when someone's foot is pointed out, when they go to do something, as opposed to someone's uh, foot pointed in, as you're pointing out, it might do six or seven other things that we're not even really thinking about. Mm-hmm. It might serve the hip or it might serve uh, the shoulder. Or it might be a way for them to get around some sort of, uh, maybe they were just born with uh, shorter hip sockets or something. And yeah. it's, they're, they're getting around some sort of maybe genetic limitation to express their full genetic potential. Absolutely. Absolutely. And when you, when you talk about this stuff, because really injury is diagnostic, right? Like it's a diagnostic test of will you get hurt or will you not get hurt? And so if you do a movement screen and you classify, hey, I have 15 guys and five of them are in the risky category. So now we've diagnosed and said five of you will get hurt. And then all five of them get hurt. And you say, well, my test is perfect. That's rare. What typically happens is you say all five of them get hurt and then one of them gets hurt. And you say, see, my category works because I said that he would get hurt and he did get hurt. But you didn't consider everybody else that you said would get hurt. And so in diagnostics, this is like medical testing, you would say that's sensitivity and specificity, right? Even if it's something like cancer research, right, or cancer testing. And the goal is that if you say something about somebody, that that happens. And if you say it won't happen, then it won't happen. And so I can predict every injury for anybody. I can go to a coach and say, coach, all 15 of your guys are going to get hurt. And then when one of them gets hurt, you say, see, I predicted your injury. I told you he would get hurt. Yeah, but you told me 15 would get hurt and 14 did not get hurt. And so your test or your diagnostic was actually terrible. But we don't, because we're humans and because we attach our ideas to things that we think about, you only notice the people that got hurt. And now you say, well, see, I told you if you did that, you would get hurt. And then he got hurt. Well, yeah, but you told me 20 people would get hurt and only three got hurt. <laughs> 17 were actually healthy. So your test is actually terrible. But you're not going to say that on Instagram or anywhere else. You're going to talk about the three that you predicted. Those 17 will get hurt at some point, though. <laughs> yeah, <man>. they will. <laughs> they will. You're right. So, yeah, I, I can predict every injury. I would say every athlete will get hurt eventually. Mm-hmm. And now I'm 100% accurate because every athlete's <laughs> going to get hurt. Congratulations. Well, they played through injury. Yeah. <laughs> and so then the other challenge, even another layer to this, is when you do that, if, if you were to do a diagnostic or a screen of anything with athletes, and then you say, well, these seven, we think these seven are at risk of injury. Mm-hmm you're not just going to wait and watch them go out and get hurt because that's what you would want to do. To figure out if a test is good, you would say, okay, these five are going to get hurt. Let's go watch them play. Let's not intervene. We're just going to go watch them play and see if they get hurt. But you wouldn't do that because you're a performance coach, you're a trainer, you're a PT, you're a dietitian, whatever, you're a coach. So you're going to say, okay, you might get hurt. I'm going to go out and try to change that and reduce the risk of that. Mm. So now you have an intervention that's occurring prospectively out while they go out and try to get hurt. So it's just so complicated. So for you to really figure out if a screen was to work, you would have to first screen them. You would have to say, okay, these of these 20 guys, these 10 will get hurt. You need one season to just let them go out and get hurt. Shit. And let's say eight of them do get hurt in that group. We say, okay, we're pretty confident that this works. You still have no idea what would affect that to decrease that risk. So now you need another year. You need a whole new, different group. You need to do that test again. You need to get 10 more people who might get hurt, 10 who don't. And then you would give them all an intervention. And you mm-hmm. say, does this intervention work? Well, last year... Eight of them got hurt. This year, only four got hurt. Okay, we think something's working. Okay, let's do that again now. So it would take years and years Mm -hmm. of research and years and years of watching people get hurt and then years and years of you manipulating your intervention to ultimately ever be confident that this is probably going to work. So instead, what we say is we just use logic and we say, okay, a hamstring strain is pretty common in soccer. We know that a hamstring strain essentially occurs because the hamstring doesn't have the capacity to stop the leg from ripping. So what are we going to do? We're going to improve the strength, the conditioning, the velocity mechanics of that tissue maybe improve the fossil length, the length of that tissue or that muscle fiber. We're going to do all those things and just hope that it works. Yeah. 
And to me, that's an okay approach because it's probably the honest and logical approach versus the research approach, which would just take years and we don't have time for that. <laughs> so that was yeah. a lot. Yeah. Well, a lot of people <laughs> don't want to say that we're hoping for the best, but ultimately that's, that is kind of what, what has to be done, right? With your athletes and your efforts to try to help them move better, I would imagine, and to, you know, I guess potentially uh, avoid injury in some regards, there must be sometimes a pattern, though, with somebody who's like, oh, you know, my my back hurts a lot. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they, have, they have a symptom. Mm-hmm. And maybe not only do they have a symptom that they just have pain in their back, but maybe another player also, uh, you mentioned injury history mm-hmm. earlier. So maybe this, you know, maybe you have a guy that continually hurts his left knee. And then if you kind of think about it, you're like, well, you kind of walk around like an idiot. So (laughs) I've been thinking your left knee probably hurts anyway. So that's where you might be able to get into some corrective stuff that may help. Yeah. But again, it'd still be really hard to tell how much it will help and and what it will do. The way someone stands, the way someone rests, the way someone plays the game is going to have a massive impact on their knee or lower back pain or whatever it might be right for sure yeah and i always say you know hope i always say hope isn't a strategy right like although we're out there and and the hope comes from confidence that we're doing all the right things and we lean on the research with that we lean on our experience with that right you call it evidence-based practice um so even though hope isn't a strategy to realize if someone comes in with knee pain okay what are the things that we know might influence this knee pain Mm. maybe it's down to nutritional level maybe we need to get them some collagen for example right Maybe it comes down to the tissue capacity level. Maybe we need to start them with some isometrics to decrease knee pain and then build that out, build some strength in these different positions. Maybe it comes down to the fact that it's tendonous. So every time they do more stretch shortening cycle, explosive type movements, Mm. maybe spikes in that type of movement category is what's causing knee pain. So can we build that load over time? So we can always reverse engineer what's going on and then obviously create an intervention to influence that. Uh, But at the end of the day, you can do all of that and it's still an experiment N equals one, right? Just because the research says something about a group of people, it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to work for your athlete. You want to lean on that and use that stuff, but you got to use your own experience and use some logic. And mm-hmm. and ultimately, it's a process, right? Hey, we're doing this, and that seems to work. I've had athletes come to me and say, Ram, every time I do that, that feels good. Great, keep doing that, right? Like, I'm not going to overthink it. You say that feels good. That decreases knee pain. Great, keep doing that. And then we'll leave that, and then can we add other things in over time? And I think that's ultimately the goal is just a gradual process to reduce pain, reduce risky behaviors and ultimately improve the performance of the outcome for your athlete. How do you get guys to move better? That's a good million dollar question. I think ultimately movement is a skill. Just like I said, squatting was a skill. So I think whatever better is to you, have them do those things. Right. And so for me, you know, I want to see a guy, if we take something as simple as like a reverse lunge, right. Or a lunge pattern in general. Well, if I want you to get better at that patterning, because ultimately what is movement, I would just, you just, you want to reduce it down to the motor patterns. Right. And so However, so you might call a squat, a hinge, a lunge pattern, your upper body, your pushes and your pulls, right? Any type of trunk rotation. And it's like, well, let's just do those things and let's progress those things gradually and accordingly, right? Progressive overload. And, and load doesn't have, when we say progressive overload, it doesn't necessarily mean weight. Mm. It just means progressively moving that thing towards a direction that's typically more complicated or faster or heavier. Progressive overload, any movement pattern, and typically guys get pretty good at it. And I, it doesn't take a lot. Like I've had, I mean, you take our off-season, for example. So the way we get to a, a, a rear foot elevated split squat, right? You put your back leg up on something and you basically squat through that front leg. The way we get there is from a split squat and reverse reverse lunge patterning. So we'll start with a split squat, which is very stable. You know where you're going to be at. Drop down and up. We use some tempos and we build that. Can you reverse lunge? Now, can we add a dynamic component? And then can we just stick you in a relatively 
true single leg position, right? It's not a single leg squat, but it's a rear foot elevated single leg squat. And I've had athletes who get to that and they're terrible at it. They just can't find balance. They can't find stability. So we coach them through it. Hey, if you if you create distance between your back leg and your front leg laterally, that gives you more stability. Hey, the reason why you can't get into range is because your front foot is way too close to your back foot. So let's spread that part out, right? And so, hey, every time you stand, the, process, the problem for you is actually starting in the standing position. So we're going to start you with the knee down, bottoms up position. And then we start to create and move this thing around. It's like, oh, this you look terrible last week. You look a little bit better this week. It's still not great. You were a 2 out of 10. Now it's a 5 out of 10. And by week four, I got guys moving with, you know, appreciable amounts of weight that looks pretty good. It's like an eight out of ten. Hey, you don't look like me when I do it because I've been doing this for years and it's a movement that I'm good at. But you look pretty good and you're passing the eye test. So let's load this up. And now we could now we get into what we care about, the load and the velocities and those things. Mm -hmm. But I actually don't think it's that hard to get people to move better. I think it's just progressive overload and have a proper progression or regression as needed. But most athletes will find a way to figure it out. That's yeah. why they're athletes. Like I've had Some people fascial work. Like uh, you mess with that. Like you have guys, you know, rolling out and doing that kind of stuff. Yeah, a little bit. Um, especially because any pain at a joint or inhibition at a joint or a tissue level can transfer to a joint, and now you don't want to move through that joint freely. So for sure, you know, if if something feels tight, that feeling of tightness, that sensation of tightness, will influence your movement. So if we can reduce that sensation through a mm -hmm. foam roll, for example, or even a, a static stretch for a little bit. That will reduce that sensation of tightness, and then now you're more willing to move through. So if you have a tight quad, you're not going to like a rear foot elevated split squat because that back leg is going to get a stretch in the quad. So one way we can improve that that patterning is by letting you foam roll your quad or getting into like what I would call a couch stretch. So put your back leg up on something and then sit up tall, and now you get a stretch in that back kind of quad. But by doing that, we reduce the sensation, which comes from the brain, and now the brain says, oh, yeah, I don't care if you move through the range of motion, and now you can move freely. And so did we improve movement? Yeah, but you can do that in 30 seconds, right? And some of that is just playing around with the brain because ultimately movement is an expression of the brain and sensation or pain, quote unquote, is also an expression of the brain. Along with that, uh, I'm curious about this because like obviously these are D1 level basketball players and when you worked with NBA, those are NBA players. So they're probably moving pretty well. They're probably not too stiff, but what ha have you seen any benefit with athletes becoming a bit more flexible and mobile and that helping with their overall performance. And it's not just like stretching, like obviously going through a rear foot elevated spit squat and some of these movements will allow people to become more flexible. Mm -hmm. But have you noticed like that, the flexibility aspect increasing and from there movement and performance increasing or is there, is it not that important? Yeah, great question. And you said something at the front end there, I think is super important. You said most of them move pretty well. Mm -hmm. And I would totally agree with that, but I've had people tell me, oh, he's a terrible mover. And it's like, well, because he didn't pass your movement screen? Well, that's because you created what movement was. You defined <laughs> it, and they didn't pass your test. Mm. But I just watched. I've literally had an athlete go out, put the ball between his legs, Yeah, the spin, guy dunks from the fucking free throw line. Windmill dunk. <laughs> and it's like, do you know how complicated that is? <laughs> like He's he, not a good mover. Though, yeah, man. he's a terrible <laughs> mover. But he's literally seven feet, put the ball between his legs, spin to a windmill dunk. And it's like, wow, if that's bad movement, then I'll, I don't have a chance, right? <laughs> Um, so yeah, I think that that's important to understand that part, but yeah. ultimately around the idea of like flexibility or mobility or stiffness, like some athletes are actually relatively stiff mm -hmm. because stiffness is, is a spring load that would help you perform. And so, you know, I never tell my athletes go do a bunch of yoga, for example, because we never want to just create flexibility without yeah. the capacity to control and express force through those ranges of motion. Mm -hmm. And for the most part, high performance doesn't occur at deep ranges, right? If you think of like high jumpers, 
they're not getting to parallel in their squats, right? Like, it's a minimal knee bend, 15 to 25 degrees That's or so. That's what it is usually. Yeah, within that range, and you're very strong and very fast at being able to get off the floor with that. Mm-hmm. The other side is if you're way too stiff, there may be some longitudinal, some long-term negative consequences with that, right? There may be. Uh, because if a joint is too stiff, it, it will lack movement variability. And so if a joint is stiff, it's going to want to stay in the same kind of movement pattern over time. And so an analogy might be, think of like a river. And if a river is, if a joint is stiff, the water of the river is going to stay in the same spot over and over and over and over. And that's going to erode the banks of the river much faster. Mm -hmm. Versus if you have more movement variability, then that force or that water can get dispersed in many different ways. And it's not going to erode the banks of the river or the tissues over time. So you want to create some mobility and flexibility, quote unquote, just to provide force dispersion avenues. We just want we want to give the joint and the body options to disperse first over force over time, because if not, it's going to default to the same pattern over and over and over. And over time, that can wear down a joint or a tissue. And so that's probably not good. But it doesn't mean you need to be out there doing yoga all the time. It mm-hmm. just means that, hey, if you get to a certain range, you know, if we're talking knee flexion, if we get to 45 to 60 degrees and that's tight, can we get that a little higher? Can we just actively search for a little bit more? Uh, and the great thing about strength training is that we know strength training is actually flexibility training or mobility yeah. training, right? Research has shown that if you just train, strength train through a full range of motion, that it will actually improve the range of motion and it will give you force expression in those ranges of motion. And that's the ultimate goal. What you don't want to do is give somebody way more range of motion, but then you didn't accompany that with any strength or power qualities. Yeah. Because now they're accessing ranges that they are that they can get to, but they're not used to controlling that. Mm-hmm. And that's where bad things can happen. Makes a lot of sense. What do you do with diet for people? Oh, <laughs> good question. Is that hard with these guys? <laughs> yeah, it, it's, uh, it's relatively hard, but <clears throat> the good thing is that from, just from if you were talking about body composition, right, top-level nutrition, body composition – we play so much, we practice so much that my guys don't really gain weight during season. Um, they'll gain some weight when they get away from the court for a little bit and mm-hmm. they come back to it. Um, in general, once I get a guy to a body weight that I want for a season and we want to do that before season starts, I just want you to stay there all season. It's very rare that we want to have drastic body composition changes or body weight changes through season. Um, so do they eat good? Eh, I don't know. Probably not all the time, right, obviously. But um, is it okay? Because I think – my first goal with nutrition is, are you getting enough calories? I don't want to see guys lose a ton. Unless you needed to lose fat, I don't want to see guys lose a bunch of weight, right? So if you're at a good body composition, um, if you're using skim folds, you know, call it your guards at 8%, and you're there, well, the goal is, like, can we stay there and not lose weight over season? Yeah. And so sometimes that means we ultimately we need to get calories. And so now you get into that quantity versus quality discussion of nutrition. And to me, it's like you need to start with quantity because we just need to get the calories. And so although like the chicken salad is a nice idea, if the Chick-fil-A is what you have access to mm-hmm. and you need to go get that, go get that. Because I would rather have you eat, quote unquote, bad food than not eat at all. Hey, Chick-fil-A mm-hmm. is good food, man. And, and Chick-fil-A <laughs> is good food, too. Uh, and then beyond that, like there's actually some education around that. Like guys will come to me and say, Brian, you know I'm going to eat Chick-fil-A, but what should I get? It's uh-huh. like, cool, man. Let's, let's pull up the menu. Let's find. If you like both of these options, this one has a little bit more protein and a lot less fat. So let's just get that. And that stuff they don't care about. It's, I'm not going to take away your option i'm just going to tailor your options to ultimately what you like so around training i'd imagine the players get uh pretty good meals right when they're on campus and they're they have access for right, sure right. right the challenge they is can like, do yeah they can do what they like right yeah and we have uh we have a system where they basically have a we call it a red card they have a credit card essentially that 
um, this paid through their scholarship. And there's like, I don't know, maybe 15 restaurants in town that they can go to mm. now. And they all have cars now because of NIL. They all got their own car and stuff. So that's Wait a minute. How do, how do they have their own cars now? What do you yeah, mean? yeah, everyone's got their own car. They that's get like, contracts now. Yeah, they... they like, Really? Yeah. Yeah. So everyone has their, I mean, before, my running joke is like, some of y'all haven't made a left hand layup in a game. You got a car already. Like, <laughs> uh, but I like it, right? Like, the benefit is now, That's there's true. no excuse to not go. Because just a year ago, it was, Ram, I didn't have a ride. And yeah. now it's like, that's not an option anymore. Ram, I didn't have money. It's mm, not an option anymore. Um, so we always, but in general, I look at nutrition like, can we get the calories? And then once we've got a system to where you're getting calories, you're not losing weight, you're not gaining weight. Like, we, we found this caloric balance that we need. Perfect. Now let's improve the quality. Hey, you're going to Chick-fil-A anyways. Here's what you should pick instead of this. And then over time, we'll start to mix in some of those other things. Like, hey, Ray, I know I drink a lot of soda. Like, how can I switch it? And sometimes, like, some coaches are like, oh, just drink water. I'm like, that's not realistic. <laughs> okay, so we know we don't want you to get calories from your, your, your beverages. Can we get to water? Can we get to uh, a, a Gatorade Zero, right? A lower, Or it might just be a flavored option that's mm-hmm. zero calories. Sometimes mm-hmm. that's good, right? And so... Um, yeah, I think it's just like educating and tailoring through whatever they got going on. Uh, the biggest gaps that we see is like guys, they're just young, right? They're, they're young men, and so they don't know how to – time management comes to mind, right? Like, oh, I didn't have time. Well, okay, like you didn't want to get up early to make breakfast, which mm-hmm. is fine, but you knew that that was going to be the case. So why don't the night before we create some things that you can wake up and eat? Things that we know we do because we're adults and we right. – they just lack some of the time management skills around nutrition. Yeah. And that's like the first kind of hole we need to plug. <laughs> and then we do obviously give them some different supplements and stuff like that. And um, and that helps. But ultimately, I just look at it. Are you eating and can we time that appropriately? Because sometimes guys will wake up, they'll miss breakfast, they'll go class, class, mm. tutoring, lift, practice. And like you get to practice and they're, damn, I'm lightheaded. It's like, <laughs> what did you eat today? No, I didn't have time. And it's like, no, it, you did have time. You didn't prioritize it. Right. And so I think it's just a lot of that education. Mm. These guys got, I mean, I know supplementation isn't the biggest thing, but electrolyte supplementation for athletes that sweat a lot is a pretty big deal. Do they, do they do much of that over there? Do they provide that? Or do you don't, do you not think that's that big of a deal for them? Yeah, no, it certainly is. They sweat a ton, obviously. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, we provide some stuff and then our trainers obviously provide some stuff and, um, and they're pretty good about like hydrating. We're mainly because we practice so hard that you're going to find a way to get some like, (laughs) And coach kind of treats water breaks as like a benefit. So like when they can drink and refuel, and obviously have Gatorade on the sideline, um, they they find a way to get kind of rehydrated because we just practice so hard. I think sometimes if your training isn't that intense, then there's times where you can go hours without rehydrating because you just don't feel the need for it. But when your training is very intense, you're gonna find a way to go get some water or because re- coach is telling you it's water break time and everyone's mm-hmm. part of the culture. So um, and then we'll supplement a little bit with it. Uh, but not a ton of like just like salt packs or anything like that. It's usually just through Gatorade and other things. So it seems like uh, in the NBA, um, not that you had more, con- I'll say uh, more influence over the players now because like in the NBA, you have your strength coach. You had a mo- probably had a mobility coach. You got a diet coach. You got a coach for every aspect of it. But it seems like right now you have a little bit more influence on the players. Are you finding like that being one of the biggest differences between NBA and and, uh, and college? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I think it's it's one of the reasons why I love what I do a lot more now. Uh, and I loved what I did before in the NBA, but um, college is special because you can really impact them and you can influence a ton of different areas around the performance spectrum, whether it's strength and um, you know diet, whether mm-hmm. it's conditioning. 
whether it's what the coaches are doing with film and all of that, like that total process of being a high performer, you can control, right? Sleep recovery. Uh, but then it's the other stuff too, right? Like we talk about life. We talk about being social. We talk about uh, being vulnerable, being open, right? Like part of some of the things we do, we'll do some breathing drills in our sessions and I'll have guys close their eyes and we'll talk about life with their eyes. Like those moments are are few and far between in the NBA, but they can be structured right into every single day at the mm-hmm. college level. Uh, and then obviously that impact that you have is, because in the NBA, every, you know, it's funny, people always just say, oh, I'm sure you you had to deal with so many egos in the NBA. And like, that's not actually true. Mm. That most of the egos are the support staffs and the coaches mm. in, the, in the front <laughs> office. The players, for the most part, I, I've never ran into a, a bad guy in the NBA. Sick. Right? Um, they're all super, they're, they're just like us, right? Like a lot of them are, they're going to have walls up early because there's so many people that want to mm. get to them and access them. Yeah. But over time, if you're patient and build trust, they're, they're homies. They're your friends, just like the friends we all have. And so they just happen to have $100 million in the bank. That, <laughs> you know, it's a little different. Like, my friends don't have that. You know, they just happen to drive like a Lamborghini. Uh, but but I've, I've never seen a player, like, with an ego that was massive, right? Like, and some of them, some of them will have them if you disrespect them and things mm. like that. But but we all have egos, and we all don't like being disrespected. So as long as you're good to them, um, so I've never dealt with that for like with guys. Uh, the challenge though is there's just there's a lot going on in their lives in the NBA because I always look at the NBA rosters. Okay, like five a third of them will be on your rookie contract. They're rookies. They need education. They need life skills. Mm. The middle of the pack guys are figuring things out. They're like your veterans now. They're starting to have some sense of every part of life maybe they have a girl or a kid and then it's like your final five or final third that's like hey this is their final one to two three years in the league they're truly just veterans you're not improving their performance you're just trying to keep them healthy yeah and so there some of them have kids and those things and so there's a lot that go they have contracts it's a contract year they have agents they have deals they have investments and in college it's not really like that i mean it might get there eventually with nil and stuff but for the most part it's you're all 18 to 22 you're all here to play basketball basketball's the second priority, education's the first, mm-hmm. uh, student athlete. Uh, <laughs> but for the most part, right? Wait, you kind of laugh when you yeah, said that. Student <laughs> no, I didn't laugh. <laughs> Turn the cameras off. <laughs> uh, so I think there's just there's a hyper focus, though, yeah. on the game. And so yeah. we're allowed to really focus on that. And so that's been fun. What's it like being in uh, uh, an organization that has a long history of mm-hmm. winning? Versus where you were before. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no doubt about it. Uh, it's a, uh, it's fun, man. I mean, it's expected. It's expected, yeah, and that's right. the, that's the big part. There's an expectation to win. There's an expectation to compete at a high level. Um, there's a pressure that comes with those things, and uh, and when you don't meet that standard, if you lose a game, right? Like losing a game with us now at Kansas, it it means something. Like it, you don't want to lose, and it hurts to lose. And in the NBA, whether it's the Kings. Or other organizations. There's just too many games. There's 82 games. So you're going to lose games. No team is going to be undefeated. There's an expectation that, like, in college, you want to go undefeated. That's, like, a realistic expectation. Wow. Um, How many games are there in a season? Maybe I missed it. Well, in conference, uh, you might play 30 games, essentially. Around okay. 30 games, if you make the tournament. A couple and then, teams have gone the whole length, right? And One team. We did last year. Oh, uh, there you go. <laughs> hey. yeah, so, you know, up to, like, 40 Okay. It would be max. Is that the first team in history to do to run the table the whole? No, way? oh, we didn't run the table last year. Oh. Uh, no, I think I think there's been a couple teams that couple have run teams, the table, right? Yeah, like 36 games or something like that. Yeah, right? uh, and I couldn't even name them. Uh, yeah. but even my first year, I got there. I asked the players, "What's our goal?" And across the board, every player said, "Go undefeated." 
Mm-hmm. Win every game. And I thought it was like a joke the first couple. I'm like, okay, this guy's tripping. And then it was across the board. I, so I told the team, I'm like, yo, every single one of you said go undefeated. And this was my first year. So I just came from the NBA where, you know, the Kings didn't win a lot at all. But there's just, you won't go undefeated no matter how good you are, mm-hmm. right? And, I mean, the record's 73 wins, right? So you're going to lose at least 10 games no matter what, right? And I told our team, like, yo, every single one of you has said this. Like, what are you, what is wrong with y'all? And they said, Ram, this, this isn't the NBA. You can act, you can, there's no reason why we would lose any game. And that year we lost three games. And we lost zero games when healthy. So every game that we lost, and that's no excuse. We would have lost anyway. Like, whatever, you lose games. But we only lost three games. And it's like, oh, there is an expectation to win every game. Yeah. Right? And there's, there's a consequence if you don't. Uh, nobody's happy about it. Like, it ruins, it ruins spirits for a little bit, right? Mm. Uh, but it's it. That's how it should be. Like that's how it should be. There should be an expectation that we're going to prepare better than you. We're going to compete harder than you. And ultimately, at the end of the day, when you check the scoreboard, we're going to be up. Uh, and obviously, I'm not saying you're going to win every game, but that 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 expectation is set and it's real. Uh, and it's so fun to be a part of. It's it's such a different world from the NBA. Now, obviously, I'm a little biased because my time in the NBA was with the Kings and we didn't make the playoffs. Um, but it's such a different world when you lose a game that nobody is happy. Like, nobody's smiling for a few days. Like, it's pretty bad. So um, it's been great, though. I, I love to be a part of it. I'm so fortunate and, and happy that I made that decision because it, it changes your life perspective a little bit, you know? It's like mediocrity is not the expectation. Winning is, right? Yeah. And and it's not it's not a negative, like, win at all costs. Like, nothing like that. It's just we're going to practice harder. We're going to prepare harder. We have a coach that's better, and ultimately there's an expectation that if we if we live up to our potential in this game over the next 40 minutes, we will be the better team. Mm-hmm. Now, you don't always do that, but that expectation is so fun to be a part of. Your um, players probably almost know, like, our coaches are better than most of the other coaches, so as long as we follow this plan, then we're good, right? Yeah, I, I think so. I think that for sure there's a confidence in in our coaching staff and our Hall of Fame coach, obviously. Um, down to, like, the national championship game. Like, we were down 15 at halftime, and people always say, like, How'd you guys come back at halftime? And it's, I think a big part of it was our our players believed that ultimately we have a better we have the best coach in the in the country on our sideline, and that helps because if you can gain momentum and start believing that you'll win, then when it comes down to winning time, that last one to two minutes, we're confident the plays we call and and whatever coach decides to do, we're confident that that's the right thing to do, uh, and that's so cool to be a part of. The coach that the is who's the head coach. It's Bill Self, right? Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. Bill okay. Self. So, like, why do players trust? Like, what's his coaching style? Uh, like, how does he coach people? Yeah. Why do you trust uh, him so much? I mean, I think that I think ultimately the trust just comes from a track record of uh-huh. winning. Like, okay. at home, his record is 90-something percent. Overall, I think Ooh. he has the highest winning percentage in college yeah. basketball. I'm pretty sure. Don't quote me on that. Um, so, I think it just comes from a track record of, like, oh, he's lost, like, 16 games at home in 20 years. <laughs> we, yeah. we're like, we're not going to lose. And and part of that's obviously our sixth man, right? Like, our our fans are incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the trust just comes from a track record of, oh, he wins, right? And so yeah. if we buy in, we'll win. I, it's probably no different than if you were an investor and you met a hedge fund manager and he made billions of dollars, you probably would give him your money without thinking. Mm. And I think it's like partly that in sports. It's like, I'm, I'm going to give into the program without questioning. And it takes time, right? Yeah. But you start to see it work. Uh, and that's why last year was so incredible because we won, we played seven players in the national championship game, down 15 at halftime. We played seven players in the national championship game and six of them had been with the team for three years or more. So this wasn't done with one and done McDonald's All-American talent. Yeah. This is done with 
our best player who went uh, number 14 in the NBA draft was a two-star recruit locally, mm. right? Our 21 draft pick was a local kid as well, right? We started three guys, three kids that are basically local to our area. Mm-hmm. Um, so for all the hype that goes into one and done, McDonald's All-American, recruiting, NIL, all that stuff, it's like, no, nah, we just have a coach and we have players that buy in and we're going to go out there and compete. And so I think it just comes from a track record of, this dude's been doing this at a very high level for a very long time. And then we have obviously some reminders, right? There's banners around. And so it's easy to say like, oh, it works. It's right there, right? Like eh, it works. Um, and the players are so young that they're not in a position to question. Mm-hmm. And there's an IQ too. You know, I can go on all day about this stuff. But there's an IQ to the game that uh, is on display all the time whenever coach speaks. It's like, no, this dude knows the game. Yeah. And so you're going to buy into that. Mm. That's an interesting thing though that you mentioned there. Because like, I mean, I don't watch as much basketball as you guys. But – when I do end up paying attention to college basketball, it's when like, oh, Zion Williamson's going to this team. <laughs> or you, you hear about some player that's going to go number one and which yeah. team is he on, right? Yep. But you guys, it's not always that you have those players. It's just that it's such a good coach and such a good setup that this team still fucks everybody up. Yeah, yeah, for the most part. Uh, yeah, you're right. And it's very, I mean, even like Zion, they didn't win a national championship. Winning a national championship mm-hmm. is very hard, obviously, because yeah. we talked about that earlier. Is there's some different matchups and luck that's involved. Um but it's hard for one player to, to drastically change. In the NBA, it's even to that point now. But one player in the NBA can drastically change the entire game. Uh, and it's just a little bit different in college because there's less possessions. There's less space. Mm. Um, the way that it's refed is a little bit different. It's a slower-paced game. When you say there's less space, what do you mean? The court's the same, but the, because players can't shoot as well. So the NBA players can make shots from oh. damn near half court. Okay. <laughs> so because of that, the, the defenders have to stretch out and guard you. Mm-hmm. But in the NBA, in college, you can be guarding someone that can't make a three. So like our, oh, you can't make a three. You shoot 20% from three-point line. I want you to shoot that shot. So now I'm going to stand in the key or near the key. So I'm going to collapse the defense. So there's no space to move. Whereas mm-hmm. in the NBA, everybody, I mean, your, your centers can shoot now. Yeah. And so everybody's spread out. So there's so much mm-hmm. more space. Um, so there's, I think, ways in college to neutralize really good players, whereas in the NBA, it's very hard because everybody's good. So if you send a double team at Steph Curry, well, he's going to pass to Draymond, Draymond's going to go downhill, and he's going to make the right read, and Klay Thompson in the corner, he's going to make that shot. Mm-hmm. So it's very hard to double team or triple team. But in college, we can send a double, a double because the player you're passing it to really can't play that well. Yeah. And, we, and we know that because there's, there's stats for this stuff, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like, well, you actually want you to pass him the ball. So we're going to double team you, you're going to pass to him. He's going to make the wrong read or miss the shot or whatever. And because there's only 60 possessions in the game for you, that's a wasted possession. So we're going to win. If we do this for 40 minutes, we're going to win because the Mm. odds are going to play in our favor. In the NBA, it's just a little bit different because everybody can play. And so it's like, well, that's fine because I'm just going to pass to him and he can actually make that shot. Or I'm going to pass to him and he can get to this position and pass to that guy or throw the alley-oop or whatever. So uh, in the NBA, it's, I think, harder to neutralize players. In college, you can neutralize a player pretty quick, which is why the big names like Zion, who are incredible talents, their team still won't win a national championship necessarily. Yeah. What got you, like, fired up and excited about basketball in the first place when you were young? Like, what was the – do you have, like, a first memory of basketball or something like that? I mean, I'm just the classic example of wanting to play in the NBA but couldn't make it. I mean, my driver's license says 5'10", but I'm definitely 6'2", if you ask me. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But, yeah, I grew up – I just grew up when I was young playing ball and kind of played it throughout, obviously, uh, high school. And then from there, didn't even know strength and conditioning was a job. So I'm like, oh, it's a job? You mean I could help NBA players and – uh, yeah, it kind of took off from there, I guess. But the game is just super – it's super fun. To me, it's the best game in the world. The culture of the game is super fun. Um, 
it's not necessarily the biggest game in the world. I think soccer is probably the biggest game in the world. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but I think it's to me the best sport there. There is just super exciting. It uh, is expanding worldwide, right? Oh yeah, yeah it's, it's NBA blown and up. Stuff, right? Yeah, and probably started with obviously Jordan, but now the NBA just has put a lot of effort into its global expansion. They have global acad- academies and stuff like that, and uh, so and social media has helped obviously a ton and all of that stuff. So yeah, it's definitely expanding for sure. In Sacramento, you know, we got the Kings, so we got some very diehard loyal fans. Loyal. But, but like, what's that like at the college level? Because, I mean, we see the, like, we were watching the highlights, and we all, like, I mean, I remember movies like Blue Chips back in the day. Like, college college ball is, like, a different level. Yeah. Like, what's it like being there, though? Yeah, it's it's super, super, uh, it's, like, ecstatic. Like, it's, it's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember when I left, so me leaving – the NBA to college, like some people from the outside looking in might say, well, that's a that's a downward move in your career. And then people that really know the game might say, well, that's a lateral move because Kansas basketball is a powerhouse in the culture of basketball, mm. especially the college level, obviously. And then the coaches, the strength coaches are like, yo, that was a, that's a that's an upward progression in your career. That's what uh, I said. Yeah. Um, <laughs> especially coming from the Kings. Um, <laughs> you have so much King shade. My bad, my bad. How did I it's cut not that? Your cut fault. It's, We've been it's in the, the truth. We for live like here. 15 years well, haven't touched the playoffs. In the defense of the tough. Kings, uh, it's just uh, college basketball and college sports has a little bit different emphasis on their strength coach. Correct. Right? That too. Especially the especially NBA. To, to college yeah. basketball. Yeah, yeah, in for particular. sure. That part too. But I remember um, my first big college basketball experience from leaving the Kings. We went to Maui and we played in the Maui Invitational Tournament and we ended up winning that in an overtime game in a small, I think like community college gym. There's 4,000 people in there. So it's mm-hmm. tiny. 3,000 of them are wearing blue, Kansas blue, and fanatics. And then about 1,000 of them were, uh, were Dayton, so they were wearing red. And it like nobody sits down like it's just like chaos and it's like yo this is crazy. I remember my mom went and she was like, "This is so fucked." She's been to plenty of Kings games. Mm-hmm. She's like, "This is way better than the NBA." <laughs> and part of it's just because the NBA is a business, right? Yeah. They they want to get people in the seats. They want to sell things at commission. That you know they want to sell popcorn and beer. They're gonna have concerts at halftime. Like it's just it's an entire b- event. It's entertainment. You can call it. College isn't entertainment. It's just sport. It's just raw sport. And so I think that that is why you get the fanatics for sure. For you, why, like, because Kansas, they're the number one team, and you're a young strength coach, right? Mm -hmm. So if they had, like, why did they pick you? I know you're very good. You're very good at what you do. But, like, when a strength coach looks at your career and they're like, I want to be able to do what he's doing, what did you do through your career to be able to be strength coach for the Kings at 28, 27? Uh, head strength coach at 25, assistant at 23. <laughs> <laughs> right? Head strength coach at the Kings at 25, and now you're the strength coach at Kansas, the number one team, and you've been doing that for a few years now. Yeah, three years. Three years. Yeah. How, like, how did you navigate your career to be able to do this so successfully? Yeah, yeah, good question. Uh, I mean, top-level academic-wise, like, I got a doctorate in it, and I think that helps, oh. right? So, like, a doctorate in human sport performance with a dissertation in workload monitoring injury prediction, like, on paper, that sounds good. Right? Mm, that so sounds like, very good. He checks the boxes, I think, from that level. Um, but I think more importantly is just, like, I think the soft skills. I've, I've been fortunate to have really good mentors who have given me opportunities and built relationships and built relationships with athletes. So, like, when I got hired for the Kings, I was 23, and – after two years, my boss left to the Chicago Bulls. He's still there now, Chip Schaefer. 
um, OG Chip Schaefer. It's my guy. He was the athletic trainer for the Bulls in the 90s. Mm. He's Phil Jackson's mm. guy. So, like, my mentor, one of my mentors has 11 wow. rings. Like, incredible. Mm. But he taught me the ropes of the game, all the small things. Like, um, you know, post-game when it's time to eat, don't eat before the players, right? Like, there's the little rules that you don't really know, and you have just have to learn through experience or failures. So those things are important because you don't piss anyone off. I think the first part about building relationships is don't piss anyone off. Like, don't go in the negative first, <laughs> right? Mm. Um, and then I think it's just building relationships. Like, our, the players really bought into what I wanted to do. And so when it was time, I'm sitting there at 25 and my boss leaves, and I'm like, yo, like, am I going to have to find a new job? I'm looking at the college market. Because, like, again, I'm 25, and I'm like, yeah. eh, it might be time to figure something out. And my another mentor came to me and said, hey, you think you can do this? And I'm a confident dude so I'm like yeah of course I could do this stuff I know what I'm doing uh, but there's like imposter syndrome right like oh shit I don't know if I actually could do it but I'm definitely gonna tell you I could do it right uh, I'm, gonna tell, I'm gonna be very confident to you but like I'm like you're hired and you're like oh shit yeah for and I remember telling him that that day I told him I could do it and I actually made a mistake that day I still remember so vividly I forgot to take a measurement on someone and I remember thinking like yo you just told this dude you're ready you're clearly not ready um but I think that the reason he felt comfortable because when I said, I said, oh, I could do that. He said, I think you could do it too. And I'm going to push for you to get this job. Mm. And they could have posted it and had hundreds of applications for it. Yeah. I mean, it's a head NBA strength coach job. There's only 30 jobs. Um, but he didn't. He gave it to me. And I think the real reason was he knew I was finishing a doctorate degree. So he knew on paper, academically, I, could, I was checking those boxes. He knew I was super passionate about the sport and about the game and about research. Because I was the dude that was coming in with research every day. Yo, check this new paper out. Check this out. Mm. Um, I built a network. And so I think that he liked that because he knew that if we needed an answer to a question, I can go figure it out from people I know. Um, and then I think ultimately the last, the, the, the kind of cherry on top was that the players enjoyed being around me. Yeah. And the navigation there was, are you their friend or can you be in authority position? And I think that he was confident that I could navigate that part of it because that is hard. It's hard to be a relatively young guy and your players are just as old as you and they want to go out to the club with you. But now you have to change up kind of your strategy and behavior. Uh, and I learned that early. Like when I first got to the Kings, players didn't really rock with me much. They were kind of, I was, you know, I was on the workout floor every day because that's what you do as a young strength coach. You're on the floor every day. Uh, but they would always wait for the head guy to come in. And I remember it was, it was, I thought it had to do with they didn't believe in how competent I was in strength and conditioning. And that mm -hmm. wasn't at all. They just didn't have a relationship with me. So over a couple of months, and I remember we went to China my first trip, and we ended up at a club, and I'm not advocating you go to the club with your players. <laughs> we went to a club, and I went with our support staff. Yeah. But our players ended up there, and they saw me kind of in a fun environment. And the next day, I get a knock on my door, and there's two players saying, yo, Ram, let's get some work in. And I've never been asked that from these guys. But it was I realized it was, you, you knew I knew how to do strength and conditioning. You didn't know if you wanted to be around me. <laughs> and so that I think part of it now I'm not telling you to go to the club but what I'm telling you is build a relationship be a likable person uh, be vulnerable be open to conversations that maybe they're not used to right? mm -hmm. I always tell my guys even now if the only thing you learn from me is how to trap bar deadlift I'm not doing my job and so as long as we can build that out then guys will buy in because strength and conditioning nobody's going to argue that strength and conditioning isn't good for you we're not selling something that's hard to sell right I'm not a used car salesman like you know this is good for you it's whether or not you want to buy into me with this stuff. So yeah, I think all of those come to mind. Like check the boxes academically if you can. I'm not saying you have to. If you want to work in pro sports, you probably need a master's degree. Mm -hmm. um, but check those boxes so you're competent. Build a network because unfortunately or fortunately, like our network is who we are, right? Like opportunities come our way based on who we know, especially in, in almost any field. But in SNC, if the job's posted online, it's likely they already have five candidates they want. They just did that because they had to. Yeah. 
So build a network and then ultimately build relationships, be likable. And I think if you can do those things, you'll end up in a pretty good spot over time. And then last but not least, be fortunate. Like I always acknowledge that. Like I was fortunate to, the reason coach called me with Kansas is because one of our old scouts with the Kings had worked with him years ago. And so the scout who uh, I didn't even know was evaluating me as a strength coach, but really liked what I was doing just by watching. And so when Kansas needed a strength coach, he calls Bill Self and says, this is who you need. He's, you know, the best in the NBA and whatever that means, right? But that's what he said. And I was younger and that helped because mm. coach wanted a younger strength coach to kind of fill the gap between the coaching staff and their age gap mm. and, and where I was. So some of that helps, right, mm -hmm. at times. So there's been times where I get sized up because I'm young. Mm -hmm. But it's like, well, while you're sizing me up and worried about me, my players can relate to me because I could play the same music they can. I could send them DMs. I could talk shit with them. Like, I'm at <laughs> so their level. on Instagram. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's true. Uh, and now it's fun because I'm at an age gap with my players now. So with the Kings, I was around their age. But now I'm at yeah. this age gap where, you know, because I'm 31 and they're 21, <laughs> We can still talk the fun stuff of life and we could talk about music and relationships or whatever. But then there's also like, oh, I can talk to you about going through things in life. I could talk to you about the stock market. I could talk to you about buying your first house. I could talk to you about showing love to your family, calling your, your grandma or whatever. Like we can talk those bigger items that I think are just as important. But if you can't have fun with the guys, it's going to be hard to relate. But once you have that relatability, build that into the relationship because like they, they expect me to talk more about the other stuff. Yeah. Like, if I just talk music, they'll say, ain't no free game. We call it free game now. Free game, man. We need some free game. And I'm not going to like, yo, man, the stock market's down for this reason. It's whatever. <laughs> uh, and that's been so cool because now the players go to the NBA, like, they'll contact me back. They'll say, Abraham, hey, so I'm about to get this money, but I don't want to blow it. What do you think I should do? And I'm not, like, yo, I'm not a financial advisor, <laughs> <laughs> but I'm glad you're bought in, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's Sick, a very man. long way to say, you know, check the boxes academically or ed ed education-wise. Build the network and then be relatable. Be relatable. Yeah. Could you beat me in a game of horse? <laughs> mm, I like my chances. <laughs> I like your chances I, too. I, me three. <laughs> <laughs> hey, thanks so much for being on the show today. Appreciate your time and congratulations on winning a national championship. You got the ring with you or something? Nah, like, no, where is this no thing? ring yet, man. I'll send you a pic when we get in a few. Oh, months, you don't have so it yet. Not yet. Yeah, they're, they're building it. So, but thank you guys so much for having me. Damn, that would be sweet if you walked in here with like a world title or a something. championship ring or something. Yeah. Next time. Yeah, we should petition for that. Instead of rings, you should get belts. Oh yeah, that would be <laughs> sick. Walking around with a championship on your shoulder all the time. So Take dope. us on out of here, Andrew. That'd be so sick. All right. Thank you, everybody, for checking out today's episode. We sincerely appreciate it. Uh, please drop us a comment down below. Let us know what you guys think about today's conversation. And uh, hit that like button and subscribe if you guys are not subscribed already. Uh, follow the podcast at MB Power Project on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter. My Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter is at I am Andrew Z and Seema. Where you at? And Seema Any on Instagram, YouTube, and Tina Yin Yang on TikTok and Twitter. By the way, guys, we've been on Spotify. We have video there. Oh, we're up. Yeah, oh, they, yeah. They, they we stop, have video. Stop fucking with me. I mean, thanks, guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so if you like the show, rate and review because just just go do that. Please helps us out. Ramsey, where can people find you? Yeah, I'm uh, mainly Instagram, dr.ramsey.nigem, and then uh, Twitter, Dr. Ramsey Nigem. There's also a Ramsey Nigem UFC fighter. Yeah, there you know? is. <laughs> <laughs> and and y'all look kind of similar. Yeah, I, well, I think he's Middle Eastern, uh, and I think he trained like out in Conquered or something. Oh, like, really? Oh, but, uh, we, well, because he followed me on Instagram. So we followed each other on Instagram, and I remember the first time he liked something, I'm like, yo, I didn't like my own. <laughs> <laughs> That's crazy. <laughs> but, yeah, for the record, I'm not a UFC fighter, and you could probably beat me up, so... <laughs> All right, man. Strength is never weak. This week, this is never 
Strength. I'm at Mark Smelly Bell. Catch you guys later.